The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Before we begin this episode of the True Restoration Flagship Show, I would like to provide a disclaimer that the subject material that we are going to cover will be at times of sensitive and mature nature. We want to provide ample opportunity before the show begins to make our listeners aware of this who may have younger listeners and or more sensitive ears around them during this broadcast. While the whole broadcast will not be of this nature at times, however, our show guests will be very specific and descriptive about certain events, circumstances, and individuals in his life as he shares his story with us about his time in the Modernist Novus Ordo Seminary. We encourage that if you have any question or mixed feelings about whether or not to allow this show to be heard freely, to listen to the program first so you can make a prudent judgment call. Listener discretion is advised. listening to the flagship show of the Restoration Radio Network, the network for the thinking Catholic. And now, your host. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the True Restoration flagship show on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and this evening I am joined by Nicholas Wansbutter. We have a very special guest here tonight. His name is Mr. John Thompson. So I'd like to welcome both of you to the network here this evening, gentlemen. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. This show is going to be titled Confessions of a Novus Ordo Seminarian. We have had multiple listeners over the last two seasons call in and sort of relate to us that they have family members who are in Novus Ordo seminaries and they don't know whether or not they should tell them to get out or what's actually going on on the inside, inside the modernist Novus Ordo seminaries. So we're going to have a full expose. This is going to be a long show. It's designed to be that way because Mr. Thompson has a lot, a lot to share with us. I'm looking forward to this show, and I would like to start off with, John, you, know, you giving a little bit of your background to us. Tell us how you found that you had a vocational calling and, and what made you decide to follow it. Just a little bit about your upbringing in your life. Okay, well, that's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, excited about this show, too. Um, and uh, I've spent, uh, actually, I was first told about it, um, or it was first subject brought up to me a couple of months ago, and I've spent some time going through my memories and trying to organize everything, so I hope that uh, I can do justice to the subject. Um, I was born, uh, to date myself, in 1957. Now, I say that because it, I'm among those um, people who can honestly say that they were alive during the time of Pope Pius XII, um, although I was only... <laughs> One year old, I guess, one year old when he died. But that's just something that uh, I will mention, and his name will come up again. Because um, many people consider him to be the last real pope. 
uh, growing up as a family, we were Catholic, and so we prayed the rosary together as a family every night. Um, and I would say that my parents were involved. Uh, they were both Catholic. My mother was a member of the uh, CWL, uh, which is the Catholic Women's League. And in later years, uh, she sent dried food goods and clothing to the poor in India. And my father belonged to the Knights of Columbus and the Legion of Mary, and he delivered boxes of groceries to needy families. So you could say they were involved uh, in the church. Uh, I became involved when I was older, helping the priest in the parish. And actually, you know, to my mind, being involved is the normal thing for any Catholic. I mean, if you're going to be a Catholic, you should be part of it. You should participate and act and be active in it, obviously, according to your abilities and circumstances. And I know that, um, like everyone else, you two fellows are busy, I'm busy, but, you know, nonetheless, we find the time to do whatever we can that will benefit the church. And that's the ideal, I think, of every lay person. Uh, and they should try to do that. Now, I can remember when I was very young having the Latin Mass, and uh, Vatican II ended when I was seven years old. So in terms of the Latin Mass, I can only remember snippets of it um, as a child. But then I found that after Vatican II, we all discovered that both of the priests in our parish, the pastor and the assistant, were very liberal. It didn't take long at all. We were one of the first churches. Um, I'm originally from Toronto in Canada, and we were one of the first churches in the Toronto area to move the altar, have the priest facing the people, and have guitars. And it, it seemed like the pastor could not do things fast enough. Well, what he did, because, you know, obviously there were a lot of people who complained, and it was very ingenious, I thought, what he did is he established a parish council, and he uh, handpicked some liberal parishioners, and they were all on the parish council. And so whenever people complained, they say, well, how come you're doing this? And he would say, well, the parish council voted for it. You guys want it. So basically, it's like, don't come to me. It's like a democratic process. But it wasn't truly democratic because the people on the committee were, it was a stacked committee of composed liberals. And this I've seen before, it's called distributed responsibility. And this is how liberals get away with what they do. Basically, it, it makes it difficult to find anybody in charge. You know, in the old days, the honest days, you could always find, you know, the buck stops here. There is a person in charge that's responsible. But with distributed responsibility in these committees and this democratic everything, you can't find anybody that's in charge. And so you can't really find out who's responsible for all the nonsense. And so this is what they did. And it just helped to spread all the liberal uh, agenda, having all these parish councils and meetings and committees. So you couldn't find out who was responsible. And the pastor would always say, well, they did it. They wanted it. So do, it do, you do you remember uh, what your parents thought of all the, the changes that were going on? Like, were you told, oh, They well, didn't like it. They didn't like oh, yeah. it because um, my father was very against it. Um, he, um, he just, his reaction was very gruff. He just said, oh, well, they're all communists. Uh, huh. Because he was very strongly, you know, with, the Blessed Virgin Mary and, and saying the rosary and that. And uh, indeed, at, at our parish school in grade six, um, the nun was handing out uh, Mao's little red book. Uh, oh, really? 
yeah, to the people in the class. So, I mean, you know, it was definitely communist, but they were against it. And my mother had many arguments with the pastor about, you know, because uh, he was trying to promote evolution and he was, I mean, all any craziness, he was trying to promote it. And so they were against it. Um, but then what happened is, um, you know, with all of the, the turmoil and everything going on, my own, my parents themselves started having marital problems. So they started fighting. And um, finally, uh, my father ended up leaving us when he was, uh, when I was 12 years old, which I did. I, uh, interestingly, that was 1969. And, and so in later years, when he, uh, when it came time for him to die, he could honestly say that he had never attended the new mass, uh, which was a great grace because then we found an older priest for him that assisted him at his death. So, you know, that was one thing. But I, I know that the, the my parents were against it. Um, but there wasn't much they could do because, you know, the, the bishop was in favor of it. Um, and in fact, if any of the priests in the, par- in the diocese um, were trying to resist, he would just sack them and he'd put in liberals instead. So, you know, it was like you couldn't do anything because uh, the people in power, in authority, were trying to push the, uh, the liberal changes the Vatican through, through like a bulldozer. Mm. And, and so it was just very frustrating. So, um, so how, how do we get from the, this situation that you've described with all these changes going on and some discord in, in your own uh, family uh, as a result of all the craziness going on. How do we get from there to you yeah, being in the having seminary, a vocation yeah. and well, wanting to go okay. to the seminary? And... I guess I was about six or seven years old, and I started thinking about it. And um, I actually wrote a letter to um, some Sacred Heart priests that were in, uh, at that time, I don't, I don't think they're still there, um, but they were in Delaware, uh, Ontario, which is about a half hour west of um, London, Ontario. Uh, which there's a traditional mass center there. But uh, so ironically, you know, I, seven years old, I wrote a letter to uh, to them about uh, the priesthood, and they sent me a very nice um, booklet describing, uh, you know, the traditional mass and the traditional priesthood and that. And so that was my first inkling. Um, and I, um, I don't know if you've heard of uh, the poem. It's called The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. Um, no relation to me, but... Um, Basically, it, it, the poem is about someone who tries to run away from God, but he can't hide because everywhere he goes, God is there. And so the, God is like the hound of heaven, you know, sort of pursuing the person who's speaking in the poem. Uh, and it, a vocation is like that. It's very mysterious. I mean, I can't, you know, people have asked me, well, how do you know? Well, I don't know. You just know. It's like, how do you know you're in love? I mean, you just know. So this right. is the kind of thing. It's I just had this feeling that, you know, and then, of course, you know, we're going to be talking about modernists that base everything on feelings. Um, so, I mean, it, it's not really a feeling feeling. It, it's just a, a something that you just know. You just know that there's this voice calling you and you know where it's calling you to. And, you know, for me, I, I responded early on. But then with Vatican II and all the changes, I said, well, I don't want this. You know, the, the new mass I found there was no um, sense of being led or being lifted up to something above human existence, you know, whereas in the traditional mass there is, you get that sense of, of 
being lifted towards something spiritual and higher. We're, the new mass, it's all just, you know, a happy meal, basically. Um, so I wasn't interested in that. And besides that, um, in Toronto, after Vatican II, um, the Archbishop and other Protestant leaders in the city got together and created an ecumenical school of theology. So you would have um, Catholics and Protestants uh, together in one school, and that would include Catholic seminarians. And, you know, so you'd have a, a Protestant teaching church history or sacred scripture, or and then a, a Catholic teaching church law or something like that. It was just a mishmash. And I said, well, you know, if I want to learn about Catholic things, I want to be taught by a Catholic. I don't want to, how can someone who hates the Catholic Church teach me about church history? It didn't make any sense to me. And so I, I just did not pursue it for a long time. It, it was in the back of my mind constantly, but I, I just didn't want to pursue it. And it's interesting because in later years, you know, I met a lot of people who were the same situation. Um, after Vatican II, there were a lot of vocations that were um, not pursued. I remember talking to one uh, woman, and uh, she came to me and she said, you know, oh, I hear you're a seminarian. Yeah, 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 you know. <clears throat> and, then, and this was when I was still at the Novus Ordo uh, Seminary. Um, and, you know, she said, well, you know, my husband was in the seminary, uh, and uh, after 10 years of being married, he left. And I'm going, okay. And so anyway, she told me a story. And she, oh, yeah, he was in the seminary in Ottawa, Canada, which I knew at that time, even then, was just terribly liberal. So he left, and that was a good decision. But then he got married, which I'm not sure that would have been the right thing for him to do, because, uh, you know, he was unhappy being married. So that's led me to think that, you know, if you have a vocation, God's given you the vocation, and, and you should follow it, even if, um, you know, you can't immediately, um, for some reason, to, to take the wrong vocation. He just ended up being unhappy. And I felt sorry for him. And I mean, it's not as if I could solve the wife's problem, but she just wanted to know a little bit about her husband, try to understand why he did what he did. Um, but, you know, for this particular man, I mean, obviously, you know, there are many good Catholic men that get married, and that is what God's calling them to. But my experience is, you know, if you are called to some kind of religious life or priesthood or something, you know, if you get married, that's a mistake. You're going to be unhappy. In this guy's case, you know, he was unhappy, and he made three other people unhappy, too. Um, his yeah. wife and his two children. So, it's, but anyway... So if I can break in here for just a second, um, yeah. I think it would be helpful for our listeners to kind of get a bit of a timeline here. Sure. Around, around what year was this? I think, I think this could serve a twofold purpose. Number one yeah. is I think by giving a timeline, it could show our listeners how fast the degradation happened after the council up in Canada. And then yeah. number two, it would give them an idea as to where you were around what year that you seriously began considering going into the Novus Order Seminary. <laughs> In 1965, I was seven years old, and that's when I first considered going into the seminary, and, and things were still relatively traditional and conservative. It fell apart very quickly. Um, you know, by 1969, by the time we had the new Mass, we already were had altar-facing the people in guitars. So it, it just it disintegrated very rapidly, and, and the, the archbishop got rid of all traditional or conservative priests, um, and and you know so that there was nothing he would nothing standing in the way of liberalizing everything. Um, 
I, so that was, you know, 69. By that time, I'd sort of given up on it. Um, and then I guess I reconsidered pursuing it um, in 79-ish, 82, uh, somewhere around the 1982, 1979. So, you know, it was, um, I finally did enter the seminary in 84, 1984. So it was a few years in coming and, and, and sort of, in between times, I always had that sense that, you know, I got to do something about this because it's not going away. But, you know, when when you don't know where to go, I knew, I did know that I did not want to go to an ecumenical place. As far as I could tell, all religious orders in the church were becoming as liberal as everyone else. So there really was no place to go. But anyway, I, in, in, around 1982, I guess I was um, 25, I think, I decided, okay, I got to do something about this. And I'll give you the full timeline, just the, the major points. 82, I sort of decided to pursue it, which meant I had to go to university, get a degree, then go in the seminary. I was in the Novus Ordo Seminary from 84 to 87. The Seminary of uh, Society St. Pius X, which is a traditional religious congregation. Uh, there are some reasons I would not recommend anyone to go there. We may get to that. Um, but anyway, um, I was in their seminary from 87 to 91. And then since then, I've just been sort of out and searching, uh, you know, for a place to go. And just in the last uh, year, I discovered... Um, the movement, or just for lack of a better word, those people who have come to the realization that one has to completely distance oneself from the Vatican II religion, the Vatican II Church. Um, it's often called set of a Cantism. Uh, we can talk about that a bit, and that which it's sort of based on the belief that if you if you really apply Catholic principles, it has nothing to do with what you feel. But if you apply Catholic principles and the Catholic faith to the current situation, you you come to the conclusion that the, the people who claim who wear white and claim to be popes cannot be true popes, not in the same sense as Pius XII. So um, that's where I am now. But my seminary experience uh, in the Novus Ordo was between 84 to 87, and uh, in traditional Pius X is uh, 87 to 91. Okay, and so which um, what was the name of the Novus Ordo Seminary that you actually decided to and to go to? Okay, uh, well, I finally got accepted into uh, St. Peter's Seminary, which is in London, Ontario. What happened was in my own, of course, in Toronto we had a seminary, and uh, the, the natural thing was to uh, for me to go there. I went there on a, on, on a few weekend visits and discovered that uh, it was not a place I wanted to go. Um, you may have have the experience of being in a, in a place that you just felt it, it was very holy or there was something very spiritual or uplifting about it. And you just had that sense that the place led you to that. Well, if you turn that up upside down 180 degrees, it gives you some idea of what St. Augustine Seminary was in Toronto. It was an absolutely evil place. Um, I know someone who came to visit she, as soon as she walked in the door um, to go to the, not to where the seminarians, Day, but there was some public uh, rooms in there that, that people from outside could visit. As soon as she walked in the door, she was sick to her stomach because it just it, the evil in that place was so oppressive. And of course, it comes from all of the Vatican II nonsense that they're doing there, among which was um, 
open promotion of homosexuality. Um, I was completely shocked to find this there. Um, the way I found out was I was coming there for a weekend visit and uh, with a group of other guys who were similarly interested in uh, entering the seminary. In, on Friday night, um, I was approached by one of the seminarians who said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll show you around. Okay, fine. Sound, sounds good. So he took me to a place where there were other seminarians, uh, and it was quick. You know, it didn't take long for me to figure out they're all homosexuals, and they're all lying down on top of each other. And basically, I, I had stumbled into what looked like an orgy. And, and he said, well, what do you think? <laughs> and I go, What? What are you talking about? This is not what future priests should do. And I just left. Um, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And, and you know, he would invite me to join this thing. Um, and this so was I, just as, you were just, as far as they were concerned, you were just some random visitor, like a complete stranger to them, yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they'd never seen me before, and, and they, 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 you know, they knew that this was a group of seminarians that were coming. And, and I guess we should have clued in because as soon as we we came in, we were greeted by a seminarian, who you know, who said, "Oh, look who's come to play with us for the weekend." Wow. Oh. Yeah, and I, I don't think he was talking about basketball. Um, no. You know, and from you know, I'm just going. This, wow. You know, John, this may come to as a shock to some of our listeners, and it would yeah. come to a, it would come as a shock to me had I not had similar experiences as a young man growing up in a Nova sort of a parish where, yeah. um, you know, I saw for myself firsthand someone who exhibited openly homosexual tendencies who was ordained, yeah. and, uh, yeah. and many of his many of his uh, confers who were in the same seminary at the same time exhibited the same characteristics. So I don't find the story yeah. hard to believe whatsoever. No, no. Um, what you may be surprised at, as I was surprised at, is um, I know exactly what you mean, you know, the, the sort of stereotypical, I guess, uh, effeminate characteristics, but there were a lot of uh, guys in the seminary who were homosexuals, and they did not exhibit these things at all. And so they were the ones that were the big surprises. But, yeah, it's, it's, it was sad. Like, I remember that, that one weekend we had a guy there visiting us, because what happened after I left that uh, sort of so-called orgy, um, I just got out of there and, and I was met in the hallway of the seminary by someone who said, oh, you're one of the visitors. Um, they want you, you're, all of you and uh, all of your, the other visitors are all gathered in the recreation room. So, you, you know, I'll take you there. So I said, oh, good, thank you. So we ended up in the recreation room and all of the visitors that weekend were huddled together and they were... Uh, there were three conservative seminarians who were talking to them or to talking to us. And basically they said, okay, yeah, this is the state of affairs. Uh, you're going to find out that there's guys here. They're allowed to have alcohol in their rooms. They're allowed to visit each other in their rooms. Uh, there's no curfew. So they can visit each other in their rooms and drink as long as they want to any hour of the night. And, uh, you know, I, I we think you should uh, know that these guys are here and, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, the bishop knows that they're here, and he supports them. There's a priest on faculty who's one of them, and he supports them. And uh, as I found out later, as a matter of fact, was a situation where there was a conservative seminarian, and he said, well, this is ridiculous. A new archbishop, actually, he, was, he had been the Bishop of London, Ontario, and he came to Toronto. 
And he said, oh, good, new bishop, let's go and talk to him. So he went to talk to the new bishop, and, and he said, oh, you know, there's all of these homosexuals that are terrible. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm very concerned about this. And, uh, you know, are there other people that feel the same way you do? Oh, yes, yes. Oh, good. Well, we should all get together. Anyway, the long and the short of it, this conservative seminarian produced a list of names of all the conservatives, and the archbishop kicked them all out. So wow. it's like, okay, these conservatives, this was about three years after that event that I was visiting there, and, and uh, these seminarians were conservatives, and they said, you know, you got to be underground in order to survive because they're looking for you. You know, they don't want conservatives. They'll kick you out if they find out you're a conservative. And, and you know, so you're just basically like giving us sort of the marching orders, you know, huh. like if you want to come here, you got to hide, you got to pretend, you got to do this, and... The, the you know the homosexuals are here and they're in, they're running around doing what they want and so very eye opening and and you know I I remember there was a guy in tears because you know you, you gotta imagine and and I would dare say you talk about parents you know sending their sons to the seminary they they have they probably have no idea like these guys you know I know I had no idea. And and this, you know, you imagine guys that are that do go to the seminary who think about it. You know, they probably have been guys that have been praying a lot and, you know, are more devoted and and involved. And you know, they learn that this instead of being a holy place, it's one of the most evil places you can probably be. It, it's just a big shock. And I remember, you know, a, a guy he was in his twenties and he was in tears because he just learning that this is what's going on, and he never entered. I want to yeah. let listeners know that you're listening to the True Restoration flagship show on the Restoration Radio Network. Um, we are tonight have a very special show talking with Mr. John Thompson, the confessions of a former Novus Order seminarian for our listeners. We want to remind you that True Restoration flagship is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved that any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually very easily be obtained by writing to us at mail at truerestoration.org. If you're listening to our show on iTunes or Stitcher, please make sure to leave us uh, some ratings and reviews. It will help those who are looking for truly Catholic programming to, to more easily find our work. Well, you know, John, this sounds a lot to me like uh, this could be an excerpt. Your story could be an excerpt from Michael Rose's book, Goodbye, Good Men, where he kind oh, yeah. of blows the whole cover off of this. I don't know uh, if you've actually read that work, but I would recommend our listeners to go pick that book up. It's, and you need a strong stomach to... Uh, to read the book. It's, it's very shocking. On, and Michael spares no details in that book about what was actually going on in the seminaries. Uh, again, that book is called Goodbye, Good Men, How Liberals Brought Corruption into the Roman Catholic Church by Michael S. Rose. So, John, so you essentially had like a 10, 15-minute quick tour of this place, and you realized mm-hmm. that there's no way that you could, uh, you could possibly you know, carry on there. Uh, so where did that lead you? Well, what it was, I, I ended up having a discussion with uh, the vocations director, who most most dioceses have one. Uh, it's a priest who is sort of in charge of finding young men to go in the seminary. So I talked to the vocations director of Toronto, and I said, okay, I want to go in the seminary, and I will go to St. Augustine's if you tell me that I have to, but I would prefer to go somewhere else. And he said, okay. Um, and as it turned out, Toronto being, a, I guess, a larger city, we have uh, um, guys in different places. Um, we had a lot of guys studying in Rome. Uh, we had guys in our own 
seminary in Toronto. We had guys studying in the States. So it was kind of worked to my advantage that, uh, the, you know, he said, okay, I'll see what I can do. I didn't go to Rome because I couldn't speak Italian, um, but um, they did send me to St. Peter's in London. And, and the vocation director said, well, St. Peter's has a reputation of being the most conservative seminary in Canada. And I said, good idea. That, that sounds good. So that's where I ended up going, uh, was to St. Peter's. I very quickly, well, relatively quickly found out that uh, being the most conservative merely meant that they were not as liberal as everyone else. Uh. So, you know, kind of conservative is a slow liberal, if you like. Uh, there wasn't any, they weren't conservative because there was a, a belief that that was the best thing to do. It's just they were, you know, more, slow, more slowly implementing all the liberal things. But anyway, right. I did go to St. Peter's. Um, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Yeah, now, I was uh, going to ask you, um, I've heard lots of stories about that they'll do psychological assessments of people before they let them into seminaries. Did they have mm-hmm. that in place back when uh, when you were uh, wanting to go to... <laughs> yeah, yes, 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 I should tell you about that. Um, this was before I even walked in the door. They had a, a psychologist. Um, well, he was a doctor, and I'm not really sure what he was actually a doctor of, but basically they said, okay, well, before you come in, they gave, I, I got this package in the mail, so you got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. And one of the things, I had to go to this, get this psychological assessment. So um, I went to London and uh, met with this psychologist, and so, you know, he was a doctor. He said, okay, well, you know, he had a pad of paper, and he asked me all these questions, family background, all this. Okay, yep, yep, yep. And and then he says, okay. And out of the blue, he just asked me this question, and I won't say exactly what he said, but basically he asked me to identify certain body parts that are unique to women. And I'm going, huh? What? Did I just hear what I thought I heard him say? And and I said to him, um, why does a priest have to know these things? I mean, you know, I had read the, the story about the Curie of ours, and I'm going, well, wh- like, what is this about? And he says, oh, you know, well, if you don't know these things, it's to cause them any problems. And I'm thinking, well, like, this is, I don't, this doesn't make sense to me. It, it struck me that he he did not ask me whether I was homosexual or whether I liked to molest children, any of these other things, but he just stuck on this one question. And so I guess I answered it to his satisfaction because then I, I was able to go into the seminary. It, it, it was just really strange, uh, weird. Then later on, um, after I guess I was in my third year, they, they came up with a second um, psychological assessment. And I don't know if they continued to use the one that I had gone through, but the, anyway... Um, this was maybe a new by that one. point in time, John. They put <laughs> maybe by that point in point in time they put some male body parts in front of you and say, "Can't can, can, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I <laughs> know exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I believe it. Um, so basically, what this was, this was completely different. There was a, a, a nun at the seminary as a, on teaching staff, and um, she brought in a psychological profile test. And basically, this was based on uh, multiple choice answers to a series of questions. And it was the kind of thing that, you know, depending how you asked the question or how you answered the question, they could, you know, figure out a psychological profile for you. And uh, I thought, okay, well, this is interesting. And she said, you know, this is what we are now giving to all men, young men, um, before they enter the seminary. It's sort of a, um, she had a fancy word for it, but basically to weed them out. 
And uh, I said, okay. And she said, well, you know, we'd like to give this to you, to this class, just to see what happens. Because, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see how you do on the test, because we've had some time to observe you. And, uh, you know, we'd like to see how you answer on the test. Now, in the seminary, this is my, by my third year at, at St. Peter's in London, my number one priority, because I, I, as far as I knew, this was the only place, that, the most conservative place in Canada. I didn't know about any more conservative places in the States, which would be close to me or Europe or anywhere else. I just didn't know where else to go. So to me, this is where I had to be. And so my number one priority or, or strategy was to try to pretend or to make everyone think that I was not conservative. That was the big thing. And no, don't let them think that I'm conservative. So I never did anything outwardly liberal, but it just sort of camouflaged, you know, if I was going to pray the rosary, I'd pray it privately in my room. You know, and I'll tell you some of the other things we used to do uh, a bit later just to, to hide our conservativeness. But um, this was, you know, following the advice that the, those conservative seminarians um, gave us at Toronto, in, at the seminary in Toronto. I, I did the same thing in London. So they knew what I was like when we took this test. And we all took it in my class and we gave it back the results. And she said, you know, it's interesting because she said that she had given this psychological profile to a large number, you know, I guess all the ones that she could, of pre-Vatican II priests. And she said that it was very interesting because the way that she had, you know, I guess with trial and error, the way she had devised the test, that a pre-Vatican II priest would always answer the test in a certain way. And so that was one way that she could say, she said, ah, all the pre-Vatican II priests answer the questions in this way. So therefore, if we have a young man come up and he answers the questions in that way, we know that he will think like a pre-Vatican II priest and we won't let him in. So they were using the psychological test in that way. Um, now, John, if I could just jump in. Did, did she actually come out and say that or this is just what you yes. figured out afterwards? No, no. She said that almost, I'm, I'm almost saying verbatim what she said to us. So in other so words, if you're a Catholic like, and you think like a Catholic, we don't want you. Basically. Yeah, she said, you know, almost her exact words were, you know, it's funny. We've given this test to many priests who were ordained before Vatican II, and we have found that they all answered these questions in a certain way. And now we use this as a, as a guideline because we, we don't want priests to think like pre-Vatican II. So, yeah, she was quite open about this is what they, the purpose of the test was. And just for your interest, um, I've gone over my thinking, and I'll tell you what the profiles were. So this, uh, I'll give you the profile, psychological profile, according to the test. Psychological profile of a pre-Vatican II priest and a psychological profile of a Vatican II priest. And you can compare the two. So the pre-Vatican II priest, uh, this is what his profile would come out uh, according to this test that she gave us. So pre-Vatican II priest prefers <clears throat> quiet reflection and privacy, prefers moving to the abstract after considering things in a detailed and orderly manner, prefers making decisions based on objective truth and logical principles, prefers information to be organized and structured, so that is the psychological profile of a pre-Vatican II priest. And as it turned out, that was my psychological profile. Like, I matched that profile. But 
after knowing me for so many years, they they decided that I was not a you know a conservative, so they let me stay. But this is what they were giving. Now, as a contrast to that, this is the profile of a Vatican II priest. So he prefers external activity. He prefers relying on internal insights and intuition. He prefers making decisions based on feelings. He prefers having everything flexible with new and exciting ideas. So you can see those two profiles are, couldn't be more opposite. And this is what they're doing. So the, the profile of the Vatican II priest, one of the interesting things about it is that so many of the, the um, parts of it, you know, preferring external activity, making decisions based on feelings, all of this, that's modernism. You know, these guys, whether they believe in modernism or not, but anyone who fits this profile looks and sounds like a modernist. And so right away, they're, they're stacking the deck, if you like. Um, that, that the guys that even walk in the door are already going to act and talk like modernists. And mm. I, I kind of call them lookalike modernists rather than, you know, true modernists, because modernists have certain beliefs, if you like, that, that you know, identify them. But these guys, they, they you know, it's like they, they look like, mo- they walk like modernists and they quack like modernists, you know, but they're not true modernists. So this was the psychological profile. Well, um, John, yeah, I think it would be kind of good to give the listeners a bit of an insight as to what it's like living with these people. I mean, that's that's one <laughs> thing that I think is lost on on people who you know haven't gone to the seminary and haven't tried a vocation mm. is the fact that people think, well, you know, seminary life is easy. You know, you're tucked away with this nice schedule, and you know, you can come and go as you please. And oh, it's so easy. Well, they have to forget they or they they tend to forget that they have to live with these people. I mean, and you know, those mm. of us who are trapped in the office environment know the difficulties of just being. In a, you know, being in an office with people for eight hours, I mean, you know, you get all kinds of conflicts there. So I think it would be fascinating for you to tell us what it's like living with these people. Yeah, yeah. The interesting, it was interesting living, you know, um, I'll make a comparison if you like. It's not a perfect comparison, but let's just compare it to the army. And let's say, or, or the police force, you know, one of those two, like some, just some kind of a structured organization. And, you know, if you were to join either one, you would think, okay, I, you know, like say the army, I, I have a desire to, you know, fight for my country, to defend my country, like to act in my country's best interest. And, and you, this is what you believe. And then all of a sudden you get in there and you find out all of these, it's full of all these guys who are trying to subvert the country, who are trying to spy against it. Who are trying to fight against it? Who you know all of the and you go what? What's going on here? I thought that this was all supposed to be an organization to defend the country, and then you find out that it's not. And and so this was what it was. It was like just like that. You're, you know, you go in and say, well, I want to do good for the church, and I want to do this. And then all of a sudden you get in, and you find out, well, these guys are acting against the church. They're they're subverting. They're destroying the church. And so what you end up with is, is you have a whole situation where. It's like a just a big mix of guys. Like go into some of the more details with the various isms in the seminary. But you know, you, you have one guy who thinks, "Oh well, you know, um, I believe that Jesus was a Marxist, and so I'm I'm just going to promote Marxism," and he's okay. You know, this guy's okay. And then you have another guy. Oh well, you know, I I believe in feminism, and even you don't have to be a woman to believe in feminism. You can be a man and be a feminist. And this is what a lot of these guys were. They would say, "Okay, well, you know, I I want to." 
promote the role of women in the church as priests. And so, you know, you had a completely fractured group of guys that were all living with different agendas, if you like. And so that, in a certain way, that acted in your advantage, to your advantage, because you were just another guy who had a different agenda. I mean, you're you wanted to be conservative, so you have to hide that. But, you know, the, the fact of being with a lot of crazy guys with crazy ideas, you know, you could be just on your own and do your own thing. But it, it was very hard sometimes because, you know, if you wanted to um, be quiet and, and have, a, you know, some moments of quiet, you know, you would always find someone who would come over and interrupt you and you couldn't say, look, I want to meditate. Oh, you're meditating. Oh, you must be conservative or something like that. So you couldn't voice your opinion, but it, it was just like you're, you're trying to hide who you really are and, and not say anything that's going to give you away. Um, you know, what like, would happen if you did voice your opinion, John? I mean, like, what would what would some of the the, the practical repercussions be if if you were very if you're very outward about your your positions? If they were conservative, it would it all depend. Like, you might get a, a warning. Like, I know one time we all had spiritual directors, which was one of the priests in the seminary would be in charge of hearing your confessions and advising you and and sort of guiding you along the whole process, which is a completely you know, poly or procedure or, or practice that comes from before Vatican II, except now, of course, since they're all liberal, it, it, it tends to be a bit uh, uh, distorted. But anyway, um, I remember going to my spiritual director one time and said, oh, you know, I'd like to be invested in the scapular. And he said, well, you know, I hope you don't think that this is a superstitious thing, you know, and all this. And I said, oh, no, I don't. Oh, no, no. Um, so, you know, he said, oh, well, okay, you know. But, uh, you know, it, 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 if you had any conservative tendencies, they would question you. And if it was bad enough, they'd kick you out. Like I do know there were, there were several guys who were kicked out because uh, one in particular I can think of, he was very vocal and they just got rid of him. You know, they just said, you know, you're out. So, and, and would they was, say why these guys are out, or would they make up uh, pretenses, or were they as open as that well, nun was and just I say, no, this guy's case, too. Uh, um, in his case, they just said, well, you know, you're a little out of balance, right? Mm-hmm. And so, what we what you what we recommend is you go out and you read some books by Buddhists and and this kind of thing, and sort of come to a more central balance. You're a bit too much to one side. And and so yeah, that was basically they just that was his recommendation, which of course he never followed. But um, yeah, they would they would say you know you're not pastoral enough or you're not this and the, and it, the basic thing would be they they'd get rid of you and they try to bring you more into towards the liberal position. Um, so uh-huh. yeah, uh, so you you saw that happen and you go okay, I am not going to tip my hand as it were. And and I know mm-hmm. that when I did leave, a lot of guys were surprised. This is something, too, that, that when we look at, we, we hear this terminology like, well, if I express a conservative bent or if I display conservative ideas or values. I mean, this is really kind of uh, not hitting the nail on the head. And what, and what okay. hitting the nail on the head would be is to say, if I exhibit Catholic belief, because, I mean, after all, we tend to forget that modernism is a heresy. You know, we, we, you know, how can you separate the term modernist from heretic? Because modernism is a, is a heresy, as defined by Pope St. Pius X. So mm. let's, you know, let's call it for what it was. If any of these men displayed Catholic attributes or Catholic characteristics, they were shown the door. Yes, definitely, definitely. And the one thing I would, I would say, and that is, uh, interestingly enough, 
all of them hated Pope Pius XII. Um, yeah, that's not and they, they, would, they would say they would say so. You know, they'd say, you know, I hope that you're not one of like one of those Catholics of the 1950s. Wait a minute, what, like where did that come from? And because at that time, like the ni- early 1980s, you know, the guys that were there, the, the priests that were there, had lived in the 1950s and had experienced it. So, you know, they, they, they just sort of, I, they had a, no matter what they believed, Marxism, modernism, feminism, the one thing they all had in common was a hatred. I almost put it as a hatred of traditional Catholicism and, and the 1950s and Pope Pius XII. They just associated them together. Would you call these men true modernists? I mean, the, the, the ones that entered the seminary, or were they just being guided by true modernists in your writing? Yes, here, yes, yes. Here? Well, it's interesting because um, there were, of the, of the seminary professors, they were modernists, but I would put them in the minority, the, moder- the true modernists. Um, when I entered the seminary, um, one of the first things that happened to me was the, I, I went aside with the rector, and, and I said, look, you know, because I had taken philosophy and had a, already had a degree uh, in preparation for going to St. Augustine Seminary in Toronto. And then I get to St. Peter's and say, oh, you know, guess what? you got to take more philosophy. And I said, well, why? Like, what is wrong with my, the philosophy I've taken? And they said, well, this was the rector talking to me. And he said, well, you know, we want you to take St. Thomas Aquinas' philosophy. And I, I, at that time, I didn't know who he was. You know, and, and as it turned out, he's one of the greatest Catholic philosophers ever. I said, well, like, why? What, what's special about him? He said, well, we used to teach St. Thomas Aquinas at the seminary, and then we got rid of it, and then we found out that the men couldn't think properly, so we brought it back. So this was the rector, and, and he, was, he couldn't have been a modernist because modernists hate St. Thomas Aquinas. This is one of the things that um, St. Pius X talks about in Pashendi, uh, which I know most of your listeners are, you know, know what Pashendi is, but I'm hoping that this interview will be given to... Um, passed on to people who are not your regular listeners. Um, Pashendi was a document put out by Pope St. Pius X in 1907 uh, condemning modernism. And so basically, Pashendi really describes what they do. But there were modernists in the seminary, yes. They didn't necessarily run the seminary, but I think the thing that I found was from the those who were running the seminary, they wanted to destroy the church. That's as blunt as I can put it, and that I say that after just observing them for a long time, to them, modernists were useful, and, and they were helpful in destroying the church, but they brought in Marxists, they brought in whoever they could, uh, homosexuals, anybody they could, that was just part of that agenda of destroying the church that they had. And, you know, living under those conditions, it really was like an underground. You know, you you're, you, you you know uh, and I, I eventually got in contact or got to know other conservatives at the seminary, and we had to be secretive. You know, we would meet in each other's rooms. We'd have music playing to mute out our voices so people couldn't hear what we were saying if they listened at the door. We had to have a secret existence uh, so no one would discover that we're conservatives. Uh, you know, I'll tell you all kinds of stories about things that modernists taught and crazy things that they would say, but. The long and the short of it was that, yeah, like you are living with people that are against what you believe. It doesn't take you long to figure that out. And you have to hide the fact that you're Catholic because otherwise you know that they will get rid of you. Now, um, John, as, as I'm hearing you talk about, you know, you found other conservatives and you guys were kind of hiding out and 
you know, some listeners might be thinking, well, you know, why, why didn't you just stay or why can't you guys stay? Maybe you guys can work from the inside and, you know, take ah. over, take back the church or take <clears throat> back the seminaries. Well, that, yeah, I know there were a lot of guys, there were a lot of conservatives who believed that. And, uh, I mean, it's a noble thought. It, that's probably why I stayed there as long as I did. I stayed there uh, three years or left in the middle of my third year there. But that can't work because the, it's the guys in charge. It's the bishops. It's even the pope or the, the so-called pope or the, the person in Rome who wears white. They, that, that whole hierarchy, they are, they are in charge and their agenda is to implement the steamroller of Vatican II. And you as a priest, you know, how long do you have to hide your conservativeness your in order Catholic to become man. a pastor? But I guess my yeah, question your Catholic, is, yeah. but also from that hiding and, you know, just being in this and learning what you're learning and being exposed to what you're being exposed to, how, how, how does that affect the seminary? And can you stay Catholic in, in those circumstances? Well, that was that was the ultimate point that I that I got that I reached. Yeah, I said to myself, you know, okay, I can't, you know, like let's just say the the underground, the so-called underground that existed in Holland and uh, France during World War II. You know, the resistance to the Nazis. You could do that and still survive because you know you weren't being brainwashed with ideology. But in in the seminary. You never know. You know, I could say, okay, let's suppose I became a priest. I was conservative. I wanted to be Catholic. And within a, uh, a milieu, if you like, of people who are not Catholic and a whole system of Vatican II religion that's against Catholicism, let's suppose that was my intention. And then somebody one day comes and asks me a question, and I give them an answer. And because I've been taught liberal and modernist things for so many years, I don't realize that what I'm telling them is actually modernism because I've absorbed it. And that was the, that to me was the, the real reason for leaving is that, you know, it's hopeless. You cannot hope to stay inside a system where you're constantly being bombarded with liberal and modernist teachings and hope that it's not going to penetrate sooner or later you're going to give an answer to somebody, you're going to explain somebody something to somebody, and you're going to say something that's modernist, because it's been, you've absorbed it. You know, it's like, like being a fish in dirty water. You know, you can't hope to, to have, you know, to be clean, because you're going to be affected by it somehow, because you've just been exposed to it, and you've swum in it, you've breathed it, you've lived it for so long, you're going to absorb it. Mm. And that really, you can't. No, you can't hope to do that. I think this is very similar to what all of us have heard over the years about those who who decide to to stay with them, no sort of structure, and they have their Latin mass, and they'll 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 always give you that same argument. Well, you know, you have to stay and fight from within, and uh, they never reach that real understanding of what they're up against, that that, that same that same priest who's up there saying the Latin Mass is also saying the Novus Ordo, and you're being indoctrinated into his, into his ideologies, his bad theology, his bad philosophy, his bad, you know, it's the whole ball of wax. And people, they tend to just sort of, uh, they can't connect those dots together, that it's not about fighting from within, because, I mean, look at what 
quote unquote fighting from within has gotten them over all of these years. Well, it's it's gotten them yeah. no better off than they are now. They They're get un- undermined because they get they get seminaries uh, shut down and no ordinations for two years, or they get uh, protocols saying that they can't forbid their priests from uh, from saying the Novus Ordo. But uh, yeah. what I'd add to that, Justin, what you're saying is also um, it seems to me that just existing in a state where you are acknowledging that the Novus Ordo is legitimate has to have some effect on you. At least by your very presence there, you're giving some kind of acknowledgement, even if you don't speak it with your lips. You know, and, and you have to consider, too, um, that your, your, your presence is like vote with your feet. You know? Your presence there is going to have an effect on somebody that you don't even realize. You, know, you might have someone who's sitting on the fence and he'll look at you and say, well, you know, John is pretty good. He's pretty smart. You know, he prays the rosary, and he stays in mm-hmm. the seminary. He stays in the Novus Ordo. So, you know, it, that must be the thing to do. So right. you are giving an example to others that you don't even realize. Sort of just to circle back for one second on this point, I would also point out uh, you know, how correct you are about realizing about who is running the show from, a, uh, from the perspective of someone who hasn't gone to the seminary but who had that desire early on in my traditional journey to fight from within. Yeah. I came to realize it very, very quickly that, hey, this is the bishop of the diocese running the show, and he doesn't want anything to do with you. And no matter how hard you try, no matter, no matter what level of fight you try to make or, or to try to take to the diocese level, you're going to be shot down because this is not their program, and they will not tolerate it. Exactly right. And I, and I know of um, some of the guys that were conservatives in the seminary in London, like St. Peter's, and um, they, well... Whether or not they are truly ordained as priests is a whole other question. Uh, we'll leave aside for the moment. There's other information on that. Um, but I invite the listeners to research that if, they, if they're not sure. But, you know, let us just say they had an ordination ceremony and ended at that. And they, people call them father. Um, you know, they they've go into, they're now in their dioceses. And the bishop has discovered that they're conservative, and, and they're sent to some outlying rural place that, that has about 100 people that go to church twice a month. And, and, you know, what real influence do they have? So so much for fighting within the system, so to speak. For those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to the True Restoration flagship show on the Restoration We're Doing Network. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and this evening I'm joined by my co-host, Nicholas Wansbutter, and our guest this evening is Mr. John Thompson, who uh, is giving us a very interesting, in-depth, and a little bit hard-to-stomach uh, expose about his time in the Novus Ordo seminaries. So we'd like to remind you that the flagship show is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. So, uh, John, I just want to circle back a bit more to your time when you're in the seminary. We've talked a bit about kind of the people in the seminary and the problems with going to a modernist seminary, but one thing I'd like to focus on a bit for our listeners, because they might be thinking, okay, well, you know, they say these are bad guys, but what was really, and aside from these two scandalous stories we've touched on, what was really being taught and what was going on in the day-to-day life of being a seminarian? That, that yeah. Okay. Was not Catholic that you've complained of. I should mention the uh, moral theology professor or immoral theology 
if you whatever you call it. I've also heard it called pornology. But anyway, um, the modernist moral theology professor, we had a guy who had been in the Canadian Army, and he said that he had never heard so many off-color, you know, immoral jokes in the Army as he heard in the seminary coming from the mouth of this man. He recommended that everyone in the seminary uh, experiment with homosexuality. He said uh, there's a little bit of the homosexual in every man. And so that was, he stated, that was his verbatim, word for word, of what he stated in in, uh, in class, and he recommended that everyone experiment with it. So it's not to be unexpected that uh, things would happen. What was the reaction, John, from, from people sitting in there? I mean, <laughs> what did they say? I mean, what was the look on their face? Well, I, I think by the time you, we'd reached that point, I don't want to begin to tell you the things that he had told us, but, you know, we're just so, we were just sort of used to hearing any and all unbelievable, indescribable filth coming out of his mouth. And so it was just, okay, that's just one more thing. There, there, were, there were many, actually, who were quite happy with that. They said, oh, almost vindication. And uh, the, the conservative, so-called, kind of smiled and nodded as they did at everything that was said, not betraying that they were conservative, especially not on this issue, because that would be automatic dismissal. And there, there were actually, there were a number who were bewildered. I remember one fellow in particular, um, he was third year, I think, so he had been there for three years. And, and when he learned that there were homosexuals in St. Peter's Seminary, he just cried like a baby. It was such a terrible shock to him. He could not believe it. It was so much contrary to everything he believed about priests and, and the priesthood and the church. He, he was, oh, he was inconsolable. It was just awful to hear him, you know, because he just cried. Like, he, you know, very sad. Um, but, yeah, there was a whole range of reactions. Of course, myself, I just said, yeah, okay, you know, par for the course, I guess, because um, I heard those kind of things before. Well, this would square up perfectly with the time period. You know, the book that was written in the 1980s by Father Enrique Rueda called The Homosexual Network, and he talked yes, a lot yes, about I that. Yes, yes, I know that you book. Know. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so yes. that, I mean, this is sort of you know, right in line with what Father Rueda was saying at the time. And, of course, yes. he, too, was persecuted for coming out with that book. Yeah, oh, I can imagine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know, the, despite what people might think about homosexuals as being, as being weak and effeminate, uh, you dare cross them, and you find out it's quite different. The thing that, that, that I found interesting is that, you know, for me, I, I was, with the grace of God, perhaps, I was able to see the errors. But there were a lot of guys who could not. And either they didn't have proper catechism taught to them in school or whatever it was, but there were so many guys who just went along with the flow. But there were many who thought it was crazy. Like, I'll give you an example um, in philosophy. And this ties in with modernism. There's a philosophy called phenomenology, which sounds complicated, but basically it boils down to, okay, we see things, but we can't really know what they are. It's just like, it seems like, this is what seems like. And that, that's a philosophy that uh, modernists like, because it, it all ties into feelings. Um, so, you know, but the thing is, when you really get down to it, you, you realize that the guys that teach this can't believe it, can't, can't possibly believe it. Because, you know, they're looking and they say, okay, I see something, and what I see looks like a four-legged animal, and it's growling, I can hear it growling, and I can see the, the foam at its mouth, and it's walking towards me, 
but I don't really know that it's a dog. That's what they say. But if they saw that thing, they would run. So you, you can see that their philosophy tells them that they can't know what something is when they see it. It's all just images and sensations. But in the reality of life, they know. They know what it is. They, do, you know, they, they, they don't live according to what their philosophy is. And I remember when we were in this class, there, there was a textbook by a French guy called Merleau-Ponty. And um, when we're sitting there taking this stuff, the, the guys knew that this stuff was nonsense. This is the thing, is that we're all sitting in the class and we realize that the stuff that the, the priest is teaching us is utter nonsense. We, we called the, instead of saying Merleau-Ponty, we called the uh, author of the book Monty Python. <laughs> and we just said, oh, this is, you know, okay, we'll have more of Monty Python today. You know, the end result was you had guys sitting there saying, wait a minute, this stuff is nonsense and it's being taught to me by a priest. I thought that priests were supposed to tell the truth. And here I am, this is, priest is telling me lies. And, and you know, the end result like, of being taught all this modern nonsense is that you end up losing your faith. Because you just see it. It's just endless priests telling you things that are absolutely nuts. And you realize that it, it's all false, but they're, they're priests. Huh. And they go, how can the bishop approve this how can this be how can this go on and and you just you just say well it's all a bunch of nonsense and did you have did you have conversations with classmates that said things like that and they expressed that was why they were having doubts about the faith or eventually left the faith yeah some of them some of them yes some of them would would some of them would come out and say this is nuts you know they would say these things i of course you know i i still maintain my my voice of pretending not to be conservative, but some of the guys that spoke like this, um, I got them and, and introduced them to some of the other conservatives just to see, you know, if they were true conservatives or not. And uh, some of them were to some extent, um, but yeah, you would just see it. And, and you could tell it in the guy's face, you know, you could, you could just see that there were the young guys and just coming in and they would start hearing this nonsense and you'd see, it's hard to describe, but you would see one day, you just look in their face and they just go, this is nuts. And, and mm-hmm. you know, you can tell when someone is, is really interested in something and they're, they're really keen and eager. And then you can tell when they just sort of lackadaisical, what the heck, you know, they, they, they're not really into it. And, and you could see that transformation take place. And these guys, they, they would just lose their faith. Uh, and then they would adopt some of the other isms in the seminary, like Marxism or some other kind of thing that would just fill fill the void of their loss of trust or belief in the in the Catholic Church or in Catholic teachings or the Catholic hierarchy. You know, um, that was something that would happen a lot. Uh, you, you've mentioned Marxism a couple times. I know you mentioned in your at church oh, growing yeah, yeah. up, there was a nun handing out Mao's red book, but um, <laughs> how did that manifest itself in the in the seminary? Well, this was the thing. There were many isms in the seminary. Uh, like there was modernism, which is the big one that everyone talks about. And I, I'll, I'll talk a bit about modernism after I, I, I'll just go through this part, But because there's some parts about modernism that, uh, you know, unless you live with one, you really don't know one. And and uh-huh. what I find is living with them, it's a di- you you know you get some more insights. But what would happen with the modernists is that they would be there and they would teach their nonsense. And it, it wasn't very often that someone would become a modernist just by being taught modernism. Uh, 
um, what would happen more often than that is they would just lose their faith. They just go, "This is all crazy." This, you know, Catholic Church. There's no, you know, we Catholics believe that the Catholic Church comes from God, and and there's God's protection is on the Church to prevent it from falling into error. And here you have these guys, these guys are teaching error, so therefore, you know, the Catholic Church is not being protected, you know, and, and so it really causes a crisis of faith. They just say that the whole thing is not from God, and it, it, it's, so it really affects them that way. And when you have someone go to get to that point that modernism brings them to, where they just lose their faith completely, you know, I would say to those listeners that you have, if they know someone in the seminary, I mean, get them out. Because, you know, if they haven't reached that point yet, they will. You know, the longer they're exposed to the nonsense in the seminaries, the sooner or later they're going to lose their faith. You're doing them a great service by getting them out before that happens. You know, all the other isms were there uh, in the seminary, you know, for those to, to catch those. Because what you'd end up with is you'd have priests that, okay, I'm going to be a priest who promotes feminism. I'm going to be a priest who promotes the rights of homosexuals. I'm going to be a priest. So every priest sort of has a secret or pet agenda or, or project or something that they're going to do when they're priests. Then very few of them are there, you know, to be other Christs or, or to, you know, con- hear confessions, say mass. They're there to promote their agenda. And this is after modernism has done its task of, of making them lose their faith. Like, for example, Marxism was one thing we had. Um, we had a professor who is fairly well known in Canada, having written a book about uh, social justice. It's called, basically, a Catholicized version of Marxism. Um, and he would he would talk about Marxism and that. And we had, uh, like, he would talk about heroes like Hugo Chavez and Che Guevara. You know, these were the big social justice heroes. They're Marxists. They're Marxist guerrillas. But these were held up as heroes. We had uh, Marxist people come from South America to stay at the seminary. And in the summer months, between, uh, you know, when, when school was out, they, the professor organized a trip down to uh, Nicaragua, where, you know, seminarians who were interested could go down and stay with the Sandinista Marxists uh, for several weeks and just, you know, visit the, the camps and see how they're, you know, doing what they do. So, I mean, it was Marxist introduction, uh, indoctrination. Feminist, we had the same thing. There were, the, we, you know, the nun that was there uh, doing the psychological testing, she was also feminist. And I remember uh, one time we had, in Lent, we had the Stations of the Cross, but it wasn't Stations of the Cross about Jesus. It was about Stations of the Cross about suffering women. So it was about feminism. And so you had 14 vignettes, if you like, or 14 stopping points, and so, oh, see how much the women suffer and how much we need feminism, you know. So it was a distortion of the Station of the Cross to teach feminism. Um, what else? We had paganism, actually, which came in the form of the New Age. There's a former Dominican, Father Matthew Fox, and he had, his basic idea was that there was no such thing as original sin. In fact, what happened, it was called, he was concerned about original worry, so you see what happened for him. It was like, okay, everything was great. Everything, you know, there was an original Garden of Eden kind of paradise. But then people started to worry. They worried that they were doing something wrong. 
they worried that they were bad. So you see, this is the cause of all the problems. If people would stop worrying, then everything would be fine. So he, his thing was original worry. And that was his teaching. So this is what they taught us in the seminary, that there is no original sin. There's just original worry. So, so if people just all realized what good guys we all are. Yeah. If everybody, uh-huh. yeah, if we all just said, oh, we're all good, then we'd, we'd get rid of so many problems. Well, yeah. that sounds very vintage, John Paul, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he, that was right in, um, in his encyclicals. I mean, really, if you can actually decipher what they're saying through all the gobbledygook yeah, the, speech. It's, yeah. No, definitely. Yeah, it, it, it's all tied in. It, it's, uh, it's another form of the same thing, you know. Um, another thing we had, and I'll talk about John Paul II, at least that's the name most people know him by. Um, I'll talk about him a bit later because he is a, uh, a poster child for modernism. Um, and I'll tell, talk later about how to identify a modernist. And he exhibits all of the characteristics of a modernist. Another thing we had at the seminary was so-called laicism. And, and what they taught us, they said, look, you know, there's the shortage of priests comes from God because God wants us to realize that the laity have a role to play. So the shortage of priests is, is, in, is intentional to let the laity have a greater role in the church. Mm. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's intentional, right? Just not on the part of God. Yeah, it's intentional, but it just doesn't come from God, yeah. There was ecumenism, of course, which is the basic thing. You know, we had our own in London, too. We had our own ecumenical school. There's a Anglican, which I guess the American listeners would call him Episcopalian. Uh, but uh, we had an Anglican school in uh, London, and, and we had joint scripture classes with them together. And uh, so we had our own ecumenical thing going on. Gay rights, well, they were at St. Peter's, too. You know, I, I found them, and they were in Toronto, but they were in London, too. Uh, they're just a little more secretive. But again, they were there. They, you know, they would be present, and yeah, they would be defended by the priests if you tried to criticize them. Uh, that was one of the things that got that conservative fellow kicked out, uh, because he pointed out that there were homosexuals in St. Peter's, and that was the one that, that, I think that's, more than anything, I think that's the one thing that sank his ship. Got him, got him kicked out. He complained about the homosexuals at St. Peter's. Other thing I'll talk about: interesting charismatic movement. The thing I find interesting about that is that was another thing they promoted at the seminary. And uh, I would say about 10% of the seminarians were charismatics. They have this thing they call it baptism in the spirit. In case our listeners don't know, which well, wait a minute. When I receive baptism, the sacrament, I receive the Holy Ghost. So why do I have to be baptized again? But it was this sort of baptism that they call it. And if you look at the Roman ritual before Vatican II um, for exorcism, because the one rule of exorcism is that you don't perform an exorcism on somebody who's not possessed. So there's a big emphasis on, okay, testing this person to see if they really are possessed or maybe they just have some kind of psychological disturbance. So you don't perform an exorcism. So in the Roman ritual, there's four indications of possession. One is speaking an unknown language, the person has no natural way of knowing. Another is understanding an unknown language that's spoken by somebody else. The third is knowing distant or hidden events that you should have no natural way of knowing. Those are three of the four characteristics or signs of demonic possession. Well, those are three of the things that the charismatics do. 
They speak in tongues. They listen. They interpret tongues. They have prophecies of faraway events. And it's all, it's, it's really frightening. I, remember, I was told um, that when this charismatic movement came to uh, St. Peter's, the first year, there were seminarians who uh, joined, and one of the seminarians, they prayed over him, and something happened. And after this uh, prayer meeting of charismatics, um, he came back to the, uh, to the seminary, and he barked like a dog for three days. Like, literally, he barked like a dog. And at night, he howled at the moon. Now, uh, this now when was, you say bark like a dog, is this like uh, in a human voice pretending to bark, or it actually sounded like a dog barking? Well, they told me that those that were there, they said it sounded like a dog barking. Like, you know, it, it sounded like an animal. It wasn't his voice. That was for sure. It, it was just like a dog barking. And at night, he kept everyone in the seminary awake because he was howling at the moon. Now, to me, this would be an indication that there is something wrong. Like this, they, the liberals at the seminary and the charismatics, they thought it was just one, you know, no problem. The, the charismatics prayed over him for three days. And eventually, the symptoms stopped. Um, I, whether or not the devil left him, I, I am not so sure. I, I, from what this description, I would think he was possessed by the devil. Um, it's, it's very rare that people just suddenly start barking like dogs and howling at the moon. I, I think it's a sign of being possessed by the devil. And, you know, you think about it, all of these charismatics that... And I, I went to a charismatic prayer meeting. I tried to get out of it. I didn't want to go, but I thought, okay, if I don't go, this will expose me as a conservative. So I prayed my rosary, and the whole time I was at this prayer meeting, I don't recommend anyone to do it, but uh, the whole time I was at this prayer meeting, I just prayed. I, I prayed to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Before I went, I asked them, okay, you're going to pray over me. Yes. Uh, does everyone who is prayed over, do they all get baptized in the spirit? No. Okay. So that I, that was my one link to sanity is that, okay, not everyone who gets prayed over receives this baptism or in other words, gets possessed, but it was very strange. They would pray over people and they would just break into these speaking in strange languages. And it wasn't just gibberish. It was, it was like, you know, some kind of identifiable language. It was just something completely unknown. Uh, and it was very, very frightening uh, to be watch that. And and this is really a condemnation of the new mass, of the mass of Vatican II. And that is you have these priests who have gone, and three of the priests at the seminary, St. Peter's, said that they were losing their faith. They, you know, really didn't know why they were priests. And after they went to the charismatic meetings, it sort of reinvigorated their, their faith. They had a new reason for being priests, uh, which is scary. But if you think, okay, these guys that exhibit these symptoms are all possessed, as the Roman ritual says, suggests that they are, they're all possessed, but we know from uh, the little we've, some exposure of exorcisms, that people who really are possessed by the devil cannot tolerate holy water. Uh, they cannot tolerate the presence of a crucifix. They cannot tolerate Jesus and the Blessed Sacrament, the real presence. And yet, these charismatics, who the Roman ritual says are possessed by the devil, they have no problem attending a new Mass. They have no problem 
using holy water that's been blessed by a Vatican II priest. Um, to me, that's the biggest condemnation of the new Mass and of the Vatican II priests, that they, they probably are not real priests, because when the, the, this holy water that they bless does not frighten these people who are ostensibly possessed. And, and a priest himself who is in the charismatic movement and who is likely possessed, at least the Roman ritual says he is, he has no problem saying the new Mass. And, and holding the Blessed Sacrament, or the bread, in his hands. So it, it really begs the question, is this really the Blessed Sacrament? Is this Mass valid? It, it can't be. Well, you know, John, um, so, that's, that kind of goes back to the heart of the matter, because in the Roman ritual, it, the, uh, the new rite for blessing the holy water specifically leaves out the exorcism. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, that's, that's oh, no surprise. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it would almost be... If, in a joking way, you know, if these guys tried to use an exorcism, they'd be exercising themselves. <laughs> Ironically, it would come back and hit them. So, yeah, it's not surprising that they've taken it all out. The other point you know, that I'd like to make, too, is is I think that was the, the, the whole charismatic movement was sort of my final straw back in my Novus Ordo days. I mean, I was seeing it creep in right. more and more in the form of these these life team masses and, and these 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 ecumenical charismatic gatherings where you had the Pentecostals coming down there to you know, the Novus Ordo temple and, you know, everybody's going to pray and feel good about themselves. And back in those days. I couldn't put my finger on what I didn't like about it other than it made me feel incredibly uncomfortable. And that's saying right. something considering that I was sort of saturated growing up in the in the 1980s and 1990s Novus Ordoism, I mean, which was, I think, I mean, things were just going absolutely insane during that time period. Mm. But, even, oh, yes. but even having gone through all that, I mean, there was still something saying, Man, what is going on here? I mean, what, what is happening? And this is, this is not normal. I, don't, I physically don't feel comfortable being around these people and what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's so telling because, you know, I, I felt, I think, the same way when I came to that point at, at, at St. Peter's Seminary, I just can't stay here anymore. Um, and, you know, I think that that is my own interpretation or imp- opinion is that that's the Holy Ghost, God, working within you. Um, because it, it is like uh, the opposite. You know, you're, you're sensing the presence of the devil and, and the Holy Ghost within you is just can't tolerate that or, or wants you to leave that situation because it's just so inimical to being Catholic and, and to being in union with God as, as someone who has, uh, who's in the state of grace is. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, when I voiced any criticism to that, you know, I, I was always met with, the, well, you know, aren't you excited about God? And, you, know, you know, aren't you pumped up here tonight? And my response was always, look, you know, if I want to get pumped up, I'll go watch a football game. I mean, I, I'm not here to get pumped <laughs> up. And, of course, yeah. you know, from their perspective, I was the one missing the big picture. Oh, yes, of course, yes. Well, you see, that, that fits right into the modernist agenda, um, because to the modernist, religion is based on feelings. If you aren't pumped up, as it were, then you're not religious, or you're not right. into it. You know, whereas uh, the, the true traditional interpretation is that our adherence to the Catholic faith is based on the intellect. Really, it's, it's based on what we understand to be Catholic teaching, and our agreement with it, or our assent to it, which has nothing to do with feelings at all. There's also no unity in that movement. I mean, if, if you listen, if you specifically questioned each individual that adhered to that 
charismaticism, you would not receive a unified answer from a single one of them. Everybody would give you a different, they would give you a different explanation of what their core beliefs were. And so yeah. that is decidedly not Catholic because there's no unity there. Yes, that's right. And yes, and actually the opposite is, is true in that it, it, it's almost a sign of the devil because the devil causes disunity and confusion. Mm-hmm. So yes, yeah, it, very telling, very telling. And it, it's, it's interesting, you know, to hear your story and, and to hear how um, people's different reactions to something that they just feel is wrong, you know, and, and your responsibility to follow up on that and educate yourself and find out what the truth is. Well, for those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to the True Restoration flagship show on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nicholas Wandsbutter, and our guest this evening, Mr. John Thompson, who is giving us an exposition of his time in the Novus Ordo seminaries and finding his way to tradition, giving our listeners an insight as to really what goes on at the Novus Ordo seminaries. So, John, we just finished up sort of getting a, a background of where you found yourself in the seminary, and obviously you were expressing many things that would you know, that would get you in trouble, obviously, if you expressed your quote-unquote conservative bent, which, you know, this is kind of something that I have a problem with. I mean, I know it's nothing intentional on your part. I'm just making the general statement that I don't like this terminology conservative Catholic or liberal Catholic, mm. because really, I mean, there's, there's only Catholicism. I mean, you know, you're either Catholic or you're not Catholic. But at any rate, so these... I actually agree with trouble. you. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah. it's a little frustrating to hear that, that, that terminology, that political speak, which has sort of crept into Catholicism, where, you know, you're either left or right, and those are, you know, principles of the French Revolution. But anyhow, so you obviously couldn't come out and be public about your, your traditional views, your, your Catholic views. And so, I mean, obviously yeah. this would probably have had to precipitate you going underground a bit, <laughs> would it not? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I... I learned well it it became obvious um almost from day one that that's what i had to do uh because you know i knew that that's what they did at the seminary in toronto and then i i found myself surrounded by people who were inimical to being catholic and i said okay i guess that's what i have to do i have to go underground and i i just did i i'll make the the point that um I will talk about conservative and liberal. Those are actually terms. Um, it's absolutely true that to be Catholic, you're Catholic, and that's it. There's only one kind of Catholic, and that's a true Catholic. The liberal and conservative really are terms that have been invented by the modernists and others since Vatican II. Because I know that there was one bishop up in Canada here who directly quote him. Uh, he said, there's more than one way to be Catholic. And so, you know, it's from their viewpoint that, oh, well, if you want to believe this, that's okay. If you want to believe this, that's okay, as, as long as you don't try to impose your beliefs on someone else. So for them, being Catholic in, involves a whole kaleidoscope of things. And so there's a whole rainbow, if you like, or a spectrum of beliefs that are possible. But the truth is, there's only one way. But I, that whole thing of liberal and conservative, I, I guess I... I use I I'm, I have a habit of using those terms because that's what they use. And uh, at that point in time, you know, I was instinctively trying to be Catholic. Um, although I have to admit that my full knowledge of what it meant to be Catholic was a bit hazy and sketchy, just simply because I I hadn't been taught fully. Uh, but instinctively, I did want to be. So, you know, for that for their point of view, I was a conservative, but from the reality point of view, I was just Catholic. 
it became obvious fairly quickly that um, I had to hide. So what it was, you know, I, the, the great irony was I was in the most conservative seminary in Canada. I have to hide. And so basically I just decided myself, okay, I will go underground and I will not foster or uh, agree with or assent to anything that's liberal. But on the other hand, I won't criticize it because if I do, I know what will happen. I'll get kicked out. So I just kept quiet. After leaving, I was contacted or I got in contact with one of the other fellows I knew there who was not apparent, you know, by all appearances was not conservative. And he wrote to me and he said, well, I really was a conservative, but I just kept my mouth shut so that I could get ordained. And that's typically what people do. And so that was my intention at the time. I believed that God wanted me to be a priest. I believed that he that this was the seminary that I had to do that and so I just had to go quietly and try not to get caught. And there were a couple of things um uh, that I did. You know, I I wondered I I was there for 3 years in in total. My first year I was just on my own. Um my second year I tried to reach out and and find others who were also conservative. And uh, in my third year, I was you know, successful at finding some. And so that's sort of my progress, if you like, when I was there. Um, kind of things that we had to do. Uh, for example, we had, uh, each of us had a bookshelf in our rooms uh, because we lived at the seminary. And on our bookshelves, uh, I later learned that conservatives, all of us did the same thing. We'd have two sets of books at the very front where the books that everyone could see were all liberal books or books on dictionaries and atlases and, and you know, nondescript books. Behind those, invisible to the uh, casual person who might visit your room, that's where you had the real hardcore stuff. You know, the Council of Trent, all of the church teachings, that's where you, you kept those hidden because you didn't want anyone to find them. So we had to have secret books. In the seminary, each of us had a regular confessor that we were appointed. Uh, one of the seminary staff, one of the professors, priest professors there. And, of course, I had one who was a nice enough guy. Um, he was a young guy taught by priests after Vatican II, and he came back. And he just wasn't particularly inimical to tradition, although he didn't support it. And he was very careful, you know, if I... Became too, if I seemed to become too conservative, he would try to bring me back in line. Although he did tolerate me uh, receiving communion on the tongue, uh, which was not, you know very not common. Let's just say I was one of you know a handful who actually did. He didn't say anything about that. Um, but <clears throat> nonetheless, outside the seminary, uh, we found a tradi- like an older priest who was ordained before Vatican II and who was living retired in a retirement home. And we would go on Saturdays into the city and visit him, and he, and he would hear our confessions. And so it was like we had a, a confessor in the seminary, but to go to real confession, we'd go outside. I, I would do various things that, you know, they didn't believe that someone who played hockey, for example, was a conservative. It, it, was, it was strange, you know. They, so I played hockey. And everybody thought, oh, he's just a regular guy, you know, and they didn't suspect that I was, in, from their point of view, conservative. But anyway, you did what we had to. Um, in my second year, I reached out to others to try to see, okay, are they like me, you know, um, fighting the liberalism? And 
it took a year for me to convince them that I really was not a liberal. And and so eventually I met a few of them. It was like a true underground. You know, you meet one or two, and then if they think that they kind of get to know you, and if they think that you're really legit, then they'll introduce you to others. And then eventually I got to meet in my third year, um, I joined the core group of uh, sort of, I don't like the word conservative, but let me just try to use the word Catholic um, seminarians who, during the day, we would listen to all the nonsense, and at night, we would meet together and discuss what we had heard. So we say, okay, uh, for example, you know, we'd come in and the, and the professor would say, okay, Mary was not always a virgin. Uh, that's what you'd hear in class. And then at night, we'd, we'd meet together and say, okay, where does it say that Mary was always a virgin? And, you know, we'd meet together. In our meetings, we'd start with the rosary, then we'd have... Um, a, uh, a spiritual reading, usually from the imitation of Christ. And then we'd bring up, if there was research done from the last meeting, we'd discuss that. Okay, we looked up something, and what did we find? And this, and we discussed that. We'd bring in new errors or new business, like, okay, does anybody know where it says that Mary was always a virgin? And okay, if we didn't know, then that would be a research project for the next meeting. And we'd, uh, somebody would look that up. And, and I think, uh, memory serves me right there was the Lateran Council in six, the year 649. But anyway, whatever the errors were, we'd get together and find out, okay, is this really what the church teaches? And try to find where it says and uh, that, you know, the opposite. And it was like a seminary inside a seminary, you know. And we had to play music when we were met together. I One time, just, just to see, you know, the others were talking, and I, I crept up quietly to the door opened it quickly and yes there was someone standing outside the door with his ear to the door listening in oh so really? yeah yeah was, so it a, was that a faculty <laughs> member or a fellow no it uh, was another seminarian okay and so we knew that the rector you know had sent a seminary you know had had a one or more people who um he would had given the task of listening to other people in their rooms to find out where the conservatives were but as I say, we always played music, you know, usually classical music, some great symphony or something. Hey, well, w- uh, wouldn't that have uh, outed you as uh, Catholics, that you're listening to that and not? <laughs> well, it, it's funny. Actually not. We There was one fellow there who, who loved stained glass. And uh, he was as liberal as you can come or as you can get. Um, but for them, it was, oh, well, that was his thing. You know, it, he just liked stained glass. And so, I mean, it wasn't, that was his choice. Um, it, it was curious, you know, the classical music they would tolerate. If you, if it was Gregorian chant or like polyphony or, or sacred music that we were listening to, that would definitely get you out. Oh, uh, but okay. just like, you know, sort of Beethoven or, uh, Vivaldi or, or, you know, that kind of music, they would, they'd say, oh, well, you know, it's just music. But, uh, you know, we didn't dare play Gregorian chant or, uh, sacred polyphony. Oh no, that would, that would get us kicked out for sure. Hmm. Now, I have a question. Uh, what kind yeah, of sure. screening process did you have before you'd let someone into the uh, into the club? Well, that was the thing. It, it For me, it was a process of a year. That It took a year for them to trust me enough to let me in. Because I, I guess in my first year there, I had done uh, such a convincing job that I was not a conservative. They didn't trust me. They, I think that at first, uh, they thought that I was someone sent by the rector 
to uh, to find seminarians that were, uh, you know, so-called conservatives. I, eventually, I guess they, they figured out, okay, this guy is for real. So then, then they trusted me enough. But yeah, it was... It really was, uh, you know, a, a big secret organization, you know, as much as could be, because they yeah. real they were all so paranoid of being kicked out, uh, and so they were very careful. They, that I- incident with opening the door and finding someone listening outside just points to the fact that, you know, that the the powers that were at the seminary they were trying to root out conserv so what from their point of view was conservatives yeah you were talking about the, the, your group snuck off to this this old retired priest in Toronto you know to make your confessions i i guess my question here is twofold part a would be what was the reaction of the priests seeing these seminarians who obviously were making a clandestine confession to him because they couldn't make it in the seminary and uh, part yes. b would be uh, you know, what was what was his view of the church he was an interesting character. Um, he was older, as I say. Um, he actually had, like, in within the nursing home where he was, uh, he actually had an altar in his room that was uh, against the wall. I never asked him that, but one of the others uh, found out from him that he had permission to say the uh, Latin uh, Tridentine Mass in his in his room. So he he did not say the new Mass. Uh, I don't know if he ever did. But uh, certainly in retirement, he said the the old Tridentine Mass. So he was of a Catholic mind anyway, you know. Uh, I don't know to, whether you could really call him a true traditionalist, but just from what I saw, in as a con- confessor, I, I'll tell you, he was really good. Traditional, no no hint of any liberal thinking at all. You know, I, I, I thought to myself, well, you know, if this is the kind of... Um, a priest that they turned out uh, at, at the seminary in London uh, before Vatican II, then it was a good place because uh, he was a very good priest. But yeah, I mean, certainly he and, had to be shocked, right? I mean, you guys sneaking over there to commit a confession? Yeah, he was. As I, because um, I, I sort of got to the party late, you know, and was introduced to him. So from what the others told me about him, he really did not get along well with Vatican II. And so he was actually quite happy to receive seminarians from St. Peter's um, to hear their confessions. Uh, I think that he was, we, were, we asked him, or one of the others asked him at one time if they could assist at his Mass when he said Mass in his private room, and he said no, he couldn't, because he had permission from the bishop to say the Tridentine Mass, but it had to be private. He couldn't have anyone else there. Hmm. So that much, that much I do know. But he was certainly of a traditional Catholic mindset to a great extent. Anyway, uh, what was uh, so? What was his view on the you know, the goings on in the church and the seminary? Did did you ever get to that with him, or did or was that sort of like an unspoken? I did thing? not. No, no. The only thing I I know just uh, vague, vaguely from what the others told me that they had asked him various things, and he said he didn't like it. But I guess for some reason he felt he was still compelled to be obedient to the liberal bishop, um, which mm-hmm. unfortunately is the trap that a lot of uh, priests fall into. Yeah, you know, I tend to sort of give some of those priests at the time, I mean, I don't say I give them a pass, but I do say that I can understand their confusion of, of not knowing quite how to react. A lot of those priests <clears throat> were just really confused as to, you know, how to react to it, especially some of the, the old timers. As we were discussing uh, in the pre-show, I mean, this is such an unprecedented situation that no one could have even thought of it to prepare any of these priests for, for that mm-hmm. time. 
No, that's right. And, you know, if you think back to their training and, you know, the years that they grew up, I don't know what year this priest was born, but certainly, you know, we presume he would have grown up in the 1940s and the 1950s, and it would just be unthought of in those days for any any priest to disobey the bishop, you know, or the pope. Those who um, priests who did sort of lead the charge, if you like, in uh, creating the traditional movement were very much inspired by grace to to kind of see beyond, like. The true, I guess you could say, the, the true intention of the law, rather than the letter of the law, the true spirit of the law. You know, but yeah, for him, he, uh, he just, that was his thing. He, he was privately traditional as far as he could get, but uh, he wasn't allowed, he just believed he had to obey the bishop. Well, yeah, you know, and certainly, you know, the bishop was, was more than happy probably to oblige him because he was retired and thought, well, the guy's just going to die anyway, so, you know, why, you know, why make a stink about it, right? You know, let him do his I, I, thing. Yeah. And, I, yeah, definitely, I agree yeah. with that, yeah. So yeah, you, you've so. mentioned uh, being in hiding, but uh, maybe we could talk a little bit more of what was it like living among uh, modernists on a day-to-day yeah, basis? Yeah, okay, well, I, I think I'll, I'll, sh- I'll shift gears a little, because um, I think the best way to, um, to do that is sort of to describe modernism. Like, uh, you know... In, tens, in, in, in terms of living with the other seminarians, I mean, it was just basically like any kind of um, university residence, really. You know, you just have a bunch of guys that are going to school and, you know, they go to classes. Like, we were, we were allowed, each of us had a key to the front door of the seminary and we were allowed to go out at night, um, which worked to the advantage of, uh, you know, those the, the traditional-minded cons- uh seminarians, because uh, then we could leave and we could meet secretly, you know, with this other priest or with others. Um, and, uh, but, you know, we'd go out at night, uh, they'd go to bars, they'd go to restaurants. Um, so there was, there was very free, uh, as in, in complete contrast to a, a Catholic. Uh, I even, you know, even use the word traditional, uh, is almost just as bad as using liberal and conservative, you know, although it does, it is an identifier, uh, but Catholic is Catholic, you know, uh, we, I guess we use the, we tend to use the word traditional Catholic just to, because that sort of says something to the, the average person. Uh, but you know, really Catholic is Catholic. Um, but yeah, they, you know, we would, uh, in a, in a Catholic seminary, you know, the, the, the whole idea is for, the seminarian to be uh, raised in the spirit of the seminary, you know, to, to grow in holiness. So it's not just academic, but it's whole uh, spiritual formation. But uh, here, no, you could just, we were just free to go out and uh, uh, go to bars, go out, you know, on the town, if you like, and come back. Um, and so living among the other guys, I mean, you know, you just talk about hockey and you talk about football, sports, and everybody's happy, you know. Um, but what um, the, the professors, that was an interesting thing, a touch about modernism, because these guys, there's two ways to look at them. With modernists, what I found was they were great. Modernists are all nice guys. As long as you didn't show any attachment to true Catholicism, you were fine. And, you know, in terms of being living with modernists, I think, 
you know, I was thinking about this in, in preparation for this, uh, you know, our discussion, and I think what we have to look at is, is what, you know, the, the nature of evil, because I, my conclusion is these guys are evil. But, you know, when we're children, we tend to think of evil like, okay, what's an evil person? Even evil person is mean and nasty. An evil person looks ugly. You know, so you have this kind of childhood, which is not bad or wrong, but it, it you know, that's sort of the impression, you know, growing up from a childhood perspective, that, that's a bad person, you know. An evil person is someone who is mean, looks bad. But then you come to the modernists, and the modernists are all nice guys. Mm-hmm. They're very gregarious. They're friendly. Um, you know, and, and so, they don't, you know, if you are stuck in that sort of um, uh, early, you know, the, the, the early uh, signs of, of an evil person that all of us learn as children, these guys don't seem evil. And that is, I think, the, the biggest uh, or the greatest way in which they can cause their deceptions. Because yeah, that takes me to a Bishop Williamson comment. I remember hearing in a, in a conference years ago, Bishop Williamson, where he said, these modernists coo like doves, but if you cross them inwardly, they're like ravening hawks. Yeah, they put forth that wonderful, nice guy show, but if you don't go along with their plan, you had better watch out. Yeah, uh, and- I, I was thinking of a similar quote of Bishop Williamson, but not that exact one. Uh, I think another one, he said that um, their lips drip with honey, but behind their backs, their hands drip with blood. Yes, yes. <laughs> Maybe that's a better one. Liberal drip with blood, yes. It's true. Actually, I remember one incident where I was actually talking with one of the modernist uh, priest uh, professors at St. Peter's, and I said the wrong thing. And we were having, a, you know, a good chat, gregarious, friendly. And just on the, it was actually frightening, you know. It, it, it was just, he turned, he completely changed in an instant into this angry person and it was like wow what what happened you know it was such an abrupt change it, it was frightening uh and and you know i i guess whatever i had said he didn't like and uh boy oh boy he became really vengeful and angry and frightening just just in an instant it's actually a greater evil if you are nice and you're evil rather than being mean and nasty and evil because so much the better that you can deceive uh, like the wolf in sheep's clothing. And that's what modernists are like. And even in Pashendi, St. Pius X talks about that, that, uh, you know, one of the things that they, their characteristics is being outgoing and friendly and, and gregarious. So living with them, I mean, they're, they're just a joy to live with, you know, really. Uh, as, long as, as long as you just, you don't show any tendency towards, the term they used was, you know, piety of the 1950s. Because they hated the, the Church of the 1950s and and Pope Pius XII. They oh, they just. My uh, conclusion is that modernism is from the devil. Yeah, you see this today in Jorge Bergoglio, aka Pope Francis. Yes, you know, he comes across as this wonderful, nice guy, and he's you know he's he's out to make peace with everybody, and he's all smiles and makes everybody feel good about themselves. That thinly veiled. Um, cordiality, if you will, really goes away when anything traditional comes across. I mean, you know, we've covered that on plenty of other programs here on the Restoration Radio Network, where the, the only people he can't stand and the only people that he launches these salvos against are, any, are the groups that hold any semblance of this 
pre-Vatican II mindset of which he's come up with a litany of colorful sayings to, to describe, mm-hmm. and they're all nasty yeah. and dirty and evil. So, I mean, yeah, it, it's a, yeah he's, he's sort of the, the walking, talking embodiment of what you're, what you're speaking of here tonight. So, John, I wonder if uh, you could talk to us a bit about uh, a bit more of uh, what types of liberal things in particular were uh, your professors teaching or doing when you're in the seminary. Okay, okay. Um, there, there were a few things that uh, I guess I encountered. Um, I gave you some of the more extreme examples. I think um, I'll just touch on a few more. You'd listen to them and you go, you know, these guys cannot be Catholic. They cannot have the faith. Just looking at the priesthood as a job. One example was, okay, it's all about my vacation. This is something that actually happened. And I was utterly shocked to see it. The situation was that, uh, and I'm sure it's duplicated in other countries, the numbers of seminarians are decreasing. And so it, at a certain point in time, it becomes financially unviable or untenable for a diocese to maintain a seminary. And so what will tend to happen is several dioceses will send their men to, uh, to the same seminary. And uh, then they'll pool resources and keep the, the institution going. So at St. Peter's, we had guys from, uh, oh, I, I don't know the exact count, at least 10 different dioceses. Uh, we even had a couple of guys from the Michigan who had come uh, to study there, oh, guys from all across Canada. And the bishops, they were so desperate to get candidates. And, and you'd have a conversation go something like this. You know, seminarian A would be would come in and say, you know, I don't know. You know, my bishop is going to give me X amount of dollars a month plus a car allowance. And then seminarian B says, oh, well, hey, you know, in my diocese, the bishop gives this much money a month and, and you get, you know, this vacation. And he said, why don't you switch to my diocese? And he'll go, okay. So then you have this negotiation going on. Uh, where the, the first guy will go back to his bishop and say, well, you know, I'm thinking of going to such and such diocese because they give their priests more money than, than you do, and, and I get to have a vacation. And then Bishop A will say, oh, no, 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 don't, don't go to another diocese. I'll give you another 500 a month and, uh, you know, two weeks extra vacation. And then, oh, okay, all right. And then he'll go back to the other bishop, and they'll be, you know, negotiating back and forth. Oh, well, I'll, I'll give you, um, I'll give you another 500 a month, you know, like just horse trading, you know, basically. Wow. And, and you kind Let's of, make a deal. Yeah, exactly. Let's make a deal. So this is like uh, bargaining for free agents in uh, professional sports. It is. <laughs> and they go to the highest bidder. And, and I'm going like, why are you guys here? Like, you know, is, is, is it just, is this, are you not here to serve God? I mean, is that not why you're here? It, it was crazy. And I remember one guy said, and this is almost a direct quote, if I don't look after my vacation, then who's going to? I thought, mm-hmm. Like, it, it was just craziness, you know, the going to the highest bidder and worrying about vacations. I mean, they did not have a Catholic mentality of a priest is serving the people, you know. Oh, another one, yes, that comes to mind. There were guys, there was something about the, the, the priests there. They, they did not, they hated innocence. That's the only thing I could conclude. Because, you know, you have a lot of guys coming in who through a lot of it was through their own intention and, and action. They, they thought about becoming a priest for a long time, and so they had sheltered themselves from the influences of the world. And so they would come to, at the, you know, arrive at the seminary, and, and, and I was just, I marveled at some of them. I said, wow, this guy, he's really pious and, you know, unsullied by the world, really. And the, the seminary professors hated that. They said, oh, this is no good. And so 
they would encourage seminarians to get girlfriends mm. while they were in the seminary. And it was really strange because, you know, you'd have the guys and they would go to the university, um, which was nearby University of Western Ontario, and they'd find a girl and, they, and they'd bring her over to the seminary and say, hi, guys, you know, I'd like you to meet Marsha and all this. And, okay. And, and this was the guy's girlfriend. And he was going, he was attending the seminary, learning to be a priest while having a girlfriend at the university. And in one case, there was, um, there were many of our classes that were open to university students to, to join the class. And one of the classes, the guy's girlfriend was in the class with him, sitting beside him. Yeah. Well, you know, that reminds me of a story I've heard. Maybe in nothing this extreme, because you're in a diocesan uh, seminary, okay. perhaps. But I, I had a friend, and, and may, you know, maybe this is part of this wanting to get rid of innocence. I had a friend who wanted to become a Jesuit, and when he went to the provincial uh, vocations director, they told him, uh, go live with a woman for a year and then come back and let us know if you still want to be a priest. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. Not, not surprisingly, it destroyed his, his vocation because he went and did that, and then he had no interest in... Well, yeah, obviously, yeah. The priesthood after that. Yeah. Those yeah. of you who are just joining us, you're listening to the True Restoration flagship show on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Justin Soder. I'm joined this evening by my co-host, uh, Nicholas Wandsbutter, and we're sharing time this evening with Mr. John Thompson, who is giving us a, quite a, an inside look at the liberal insanity of the Nova sort of seminary experience that he had in the, in the 1980s. So, John, go, go and continue on with your, yeah, <laughs> with your okay. horror stories here. <laughs> One of the, the, the more revealing things that um, the professors said and and they they were not secretive about it at all. Um, but what they said to us, they said, "Look, we know from experience, we know that the things that we are teaching you are a bit too extreme for the average person in the parish. So what we're telling you to do when we when you get ordained or when you get out there, give it to them in small doses. Just get them a little bit, and when they accept that, then you can get them a little more." So what we're teaching you is, is sort of the full strength, the full message, but they're not ready to receive it. So give them the, these are what we're teaching you to give it to them in small doses, and then they, they accept it. You can give them more. And, and we're talking the full strength of modernism here, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and so and they knew that. So essentially, they knew that the people in the pews, at least in the 80s, were still Catholic enough that they wouldn't buy all this stuff. That's right. Yeah. So it was just a question of, okay, we'll give it to them as much as they'll accept and then give them more. And so, you know, they could say, okay, and I'm sure they thought too, oh, well, the old ones will die off and, and we're really after the young ones. I think that, you know, the two of you are testaments, living testaments to the fact that God still calls the young because you're, at least I know Nicholas, uh, younger than me. So God is still calling those who are young, younger, in contra or contradiction to what the modernists believe that, you know, the the traditional, so-called traditional, the Catholic ones will just die off and then everybody will be modernist. Well, it doesn't happen. Yeah. God well, has other planets. Yeah, Justin and I are, are of an age, in fact. But, um, yeah, I mean, I had encounters that, that um, when I was first starting to become interested in tradition and, you know, Catholicism, 
Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I remember the Jesuit priests, they, they thought I was insane. They couldn't believe it. Like, <laughs> what? You're a young guy. Like, how can you be interested in, in this stuff? Like, uh, I remember one of them said, like, wake up and smell the coffee once better. Like, this is, you know, that's like museum <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah, I know. It, it's amazing. Um, one of the things, one of the classes that we had, now this guy was a true modernist. Uh, he was full-blown. He was also a charismatic. Uh, one of the things I found the modernists do is, you know, they believe in, they believe that they have this inner sense, like an inner religious sense that, that is the source of their religion. It's not outside, it's, it's what's inside them. And what they do every once in a while is they'll stop and, and stare into space as if they're listening to this thing inside them that they believe they have. And then they'll come back and they'll continue the conversation. And this... Um, sacred scripture professor we had he did that all the time he would just go into space and come back and then continue teaching he had obviously he had a, a full name but everybody just called him vince instead of sacred scripture the class was biblical studies or just bib studs you you couldn't take it seriously because it was so crazy and it was such a shame because it really just des- destroyed your whole love of god's word um but anyway, some of the stories that he would come up with, um, for example, the basic thing was miracles don't happen. Miracles are not factual or true. So that whenever it talks about some kind of miracle, it wasn't a historical event, but what is? it was a re- recollection or reminiscing of someone who either was there or heard about it, and it was embellished because of, of the profound experience that they had of Jesus. And and basically that to them that was the source of it. So none of it was really historically true. It was all just sort of this embellishment because of a faith experience. Um so, so you know so yeah, example, in the yeah. Bible class did they do the whole uh, historical Jesus as opposed to the biblical Jesus thing? Oh yes, of course. Oh yes. Yeah, and and the final conclusion was well we really don't know what Jesus said. You know, those Oh really? <laughs> Those are the exact words of the professor. You know, it's like, okay, this book has gone through so many revisions and that. that Who knows what Jesus really said? You know, this is what these people with faith experiences. I think you hit, you know, really on a, on a seminal point there about the, you know, the denial of miracles. I mean, you know, you hear this in Bergoglio, who, you know, who last year came out and, you know, essentially denied, you know, our Lord's multiplication of the fish and the loaves and said, well, it's not so much about the miracle. It's about the sharing and the giving and the community. Then it's about the yeah. miracle of the multiplication of the fish and the loaves. So, yeah, you're right. They, they definitely disdain the entire concept of miracles of God. Yeah, well, in this, in that case, in that, in case of that um, event, you know, we we heard in the seminary was okay. The the way the story is told, it's Jesus feeding five thousand. Well, in fact, according to them, at least, uh, according to the modernists, it wasn't five thousand. It was a misprint or a copying error. So it was really five groups, and the groups were probably ten or twenty-five. Instead of five loaves and two fish, it was actually five bags of loaves and five bags of fishes. And so right, because you know, you God have, you know, God certainly cannot multiply fish and loaves. Well no, you know, oh, no of course no, not. No. no. But and, and so that was their explanation that, that the number the amount of food was much greater than what was said in the story. And so basically what you have is is Jesus feeding the people with a bag you know, a bag lunch. But that's complete nonsense when you read of what happens afterwards that when the people realize what had happened they try to they want to make him king well 
it doesn't make sense to make someone king just because he took some fish out of in, in out of a bag and you know gave you lunch. Like a miracle would have done that. So it had to be a miracle in order to prompt them to really want to make him king. But you know the the way they tell the story is completely ridiculous. Like another one was Jesus walking on the water, and they say, well, okay, that was the, that was the time when Jesus was walking on the water and the disciples were in the boat, and they saw him and and uh, Saint Peter wanted to imitate um, Jesus, so he got out of the boat and started walking on the water himself. And he actually was, uh, but then he became fearful and began to sink, and then, of course, Jesus rescued him. Now, that, you know, that is how the story is told, but to the modernist, oh, well, you know, really what happened was there were, there were stones under the surface of the water that Jesus knew about, and so he wasn't walking on the water, he was actually walking on the stones. And when Peter got out, he didn't know where the stones were, and that's why he fell in. Which, again, that's completely ridiculous, because St. Peter had been a fisherman on that lake all his life. And if there were stones, he would have known where they were. I mean, the, the explanation is completely ridiculous, but they resort to so many of these contrivances to try to explain away a miracle, which just can't be done. The final analysis, it's as if the Bible is like uh, a fairy tale, like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. That particular story, and, and I don't mean anything blasphemous by this, but this is, a, from their point of view, that is really what the Bible is like. Because those who have done some historical research on the Brothers Grimm, who wrote that story, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, have discovered that there may have actually been historical princesses that lived, or whose lives were known to the Brothers Grimm, and they based the story on some of the historical events in the lives of those princesses. So, okay, there, there may be a historical basis to the story, but it's certainly been embellished, and it's not anything like what it was originally. Well, that is actually what they, the modernists think the Bible is, that there was some kind of thing, there was a person called Jesus, and he did certain things, but it wasn't anything like what's been reported. Like, for example, the whole thing of Jesus being the Messiah. The modernists believe. And of course, Jesus either deny, not, he doesn't deny, but he'll sort of sidestep the question. He doesn't, he'll, he'll cure somebody and say, okay, don't tell anyone. And whenever that happens, it's because his time had not yet come. They tried to arrest him. Scribes and Pharisees tried to arrest him, and they could not until his time had come. So there were a lot of things that he did that sort of sh uh, shrouded his divinity until it was his time. And then like when he was before the Sanhedrin, questioned by the high priest, tell us if you are the Christ. His answer was, I am. So he didn't hide it when his time came. But before then, he shrouded the whole subject because he wanted people to believe in him for spiritual reasons and not for earthly reasons. But, but the modernists will say, no, no, you see, Jesus did not believe he was the Messiah. And basically what happened, he, you know, this is from their point of view. Okay, what happened was, you know, he came into the synagogue and he read from the, the, the scroll of Isaiah and the people like to listen to him. And then he said, oh, this is pretty neat. You know, I, I can, you know, people like to listen to me. And so he kept talking in public and making public speeches and people started listening to him. They thought it was great. And then the 12 apostles came along and they said, oh, look at this. These people listening to Jesus, let's start taking up a collection. And so they realized that this if they if they kept promoting this Jesus is the Messiah idea, 
This is the, the, the modernists putting this into the minds of the apostles. For According to them, the apostles said, oh, if we can keep promoting this Jesus is the Messiah thing, we can make enough money that we wouldn't have to fish anymore. We could just live off all the money we collect from the people. So for them, it, it was um, a, a big money-making thing. And, and any attempt that Jesus said, oh, well, I'm not really the Messiah, like I'm not, the, the apostles kept going around spreading, oh, yeah, he is, he is the Messiah. So for them, according to the modernists, the, the, the whole foundation of the church was based on the greed of 12 men. So, there's, so it was a, like a get-rich-quick scheme? Is Yes, yeah, so, exactly. So do you have any idea, why, like, why are these men even, did they ever say why they're even in the what they think is the Catholic Church, or in teaching a seminary, like, if they think that, why aren't they, uh, yeah. you know, I don't know, down at the casino, or something, maybe they are down at the casino, <laughs> well, I don't I know. Well, I know, why don't they sell insurance or something? Like, you, you yeah. know, yeah, no, no, obviously, it, it is a question, like, you can see it in some of them, and uh, there were three, um, actually, two of the modernist professors um, at the seminary ad- admitted and this was in, you know, they, they, they were very candid in, in terms of some of the things or reasons for some of what they did. They did. And uh, two of them, two of the modernists and another priest that admitted, I had real doubts about my faith. And then I became a charismatic and that sort of animated my faith again. Hmm. And, and so they will admit that they had come to a point in time where they did, just didn't believe anymore. Now, you know, you've talked about a few of the things that they, they've talked about, and I'm you know, mindful of what one of the recent claimants the papal throne had to say uh, about uh, the resurrection. Well, maybe I'll just give you the quote uh, yeah. from Ratzinger's Introduction to Christianity, pages 240 to 241, said, uh, the real heart of faith in the resurrection does not consist of all the ideas of the re- resurrection of bodies to which we have reduced it in our thinking. Was that some uh, a theme that they uh, carried on there? Or yeah. Did they go even further yeah. than that in their denial of the resurrection? Um, no, it, you, I'll come back to, to Vince, the scripture professor. His basic thing was, he said, okay, to him, it was a, a written account of the resurrection, was a, a reminiscence uh, the, the disciples had of Jesus. In other words, it's like, oh, well, Jesus died, and that was too bad. But when we thought about him after he died, we felt so inspired. It's like he was alive again. And out of that came the stories that he actually did rise, rise from the dead. But it, so in other words, it was not for them, for the modernists, it was not a historical event. What it was, it was just a reminiscence that, oh, wow, that he just he inspired us so much. He felt that it was just like he was alive again that reminiscence eventually became a resurrection story. The huh. same thing was true of the virginity of the Blessed Virgin. Uh, of course, we believe, the Catholic belief is that Mary was a virgin before, during, and after she gave birth to Jesus, and she only had one child, and that was Jesus. So she ever a virgin. She was always a virgin. That's the Catholic belief. Well, the modernists, they said, oh, no, no, no. Well, of course not. She, she was just an ordinary girl like anyone else. But she, to the apostles and to the disciples, she was so, so pure and so innocent they, that she made them feel like she was a virgin. And it was out of this, this reminiscence that they, oh, wasn't she such an innocent soul? Wasn't she so nice? That whole reminiscence of theirs became a story about her being a virgin. 
So well, all of these, yeah, you know, I know. We, we, we need like a, a Bishop Sanborn clip here or something <laughs> about how blasphemous this is, because I don't think I can do it justice. No, no, it, it really is amazing. <laughs> like, and, and the thing that got me was, you know, you're sitting in the class and you're hearing this and, and you're just waiting for someone to jump up and, and throw the guy out the window. But everyone's just sitting there. Yeah, you know, this is pretty good. And and I'm just I'm sitting there listening to this and going, I can't believe it. What can I do? I'm I'm stuck here in my own thinking. I was stuck there. I could didn't know nowhere else to go. But you know, the long and the short of it is that if you don't have a strong prayer life, you would lose your faith. You just go, This is nuts. Yeah, sitting here listening to all this and of course having left the Nova sort of years and years ago, I mean, you sort of yeah. lose touch with just how bad it is. But I think the story that you're telling here it, I hope our listeners are beginning to see when we use terminology on the air like Novus Ordo sect or Vatican II Church or the New Religion or whatever it may be, this is not being done out of malice, but it is being done as an accurate description of what these people have done. And you can see over this period of time from post-council to the time you were in the seminary to the time that we find ourselves currently, there has been the slow leaching out of the faith in every possible area. I mean, no stone has been left unturned here. I mean, you're hitting on the fundamental fundamental dogmas of the Church, and they're not shy to doubt and completely deny these. So this is, you know, this story that you're telling really is painting an accurate canvas for everything that we see that drove us away from it. And certainly some of our listeners who have called in on, on our various shows and written in emails, I mean, this is, you know, you're hearing the mechanism of action, you know, right before your very ears. You're hearing John's story tell you the mechanism of action which has led the church to where it is today. Or, well, I shouldn't say that. I should say, you know, the Vatican II sect, you know, to, yeah, the Vatican, to where no, the Vatican II sect, the Vatican II religion, that, absolutely. And you can see, I think, you know, it becomes obvious that what, what uh, the, the average person has experienced of Vatican II is exactly what the priest professors told us. I, I'm giving it to you, I suppose, if you like, full strength. And, and I guess in, in the parishes, the average person is receiving it in, in uh, reduced dosages. But it is the same thing. For those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to the True Restoration flagship show on the Restoration Radio Network. Our episode is entitled Confessions of a Novus Ordo Seminarian. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and I'm joined this evening by Nicholas Wansbutter, my co-host, as well as our, our guest this evening, Mr. John Thompson. And uh, John has been going over his his backstory to his vocation, his uh, trying to test a legitimate vocation at a real illegitimate seminary, coming face to face with the modernist revolution and having to deal with these things. So, John, uh, you know, I think now's an appropriate time to talk about your exit from the seminary and then how you began to find tradition. I mean, certainly you had to leave there pretty battle-scarred. You know, I, I put myself in your shoes, and I'm sure you know, Nicholas feels the same way. I mean, if I had to endure all of that, going into the seminary with a Catholic sense and coming out on the backside just completely war-torn, dismayed, and shocked, uh, talk about your exit and where it left you personally, emotionally, you know, your sense of Catholicism. I mean, what was your worldview? I mean, give us, give us kind of that end of it. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> The more we studied on our own, it, it just became so obvious. You know, that we a couple of the things like uh, St. Pius X put out that uh, the encyclical Pascendi, uh, talking about modernists. He also put out another document of the same year, 1907, Lamentabili, 
which is a listing of the errors that the modernists teach. Uh, and then uh, before him, Pope Pius IX put out a listing he called the Syllabus of Errors. It was just so uh, black and white. You would read what these errors that the popes had listed, you know, this is what these guys teach, and they're all errors. And then you go to class, and this is word for word what they're telling you. So it, it just became so blatant that what these guys were saying was the opposite of what previous popes had taught. In, the, in my final year there, we did the research, and of course, this was years before the internet, so, you know, it was a bit more challenging to get information. Of course, you couldn't ask the priests, because they, you know, they wouldn't dare tell you. Although it's interesting, uh, one of the things, one of the modernist priests there, every once in a while, it's really strange, you know, that, like, as I say, they, they'd be so nicey-nice, and then something would happen triggering them, and they would just turn angry and vicious. And I remember so many times, you know, um, the, one of the modernist priests would just be in class talking, and all of a sudden he just turned, become very angry, and he said, "Oh, that Archbishop Lefebvre." He and he did that more than once, and then he kind of, go, "All right, well, who is this Archbishop Lefebvre that this this liberal modernist person hates so much?" And so we we started researching, you know, who is this guy? Because one of the things that we were at is, you know, we felt we were lost. We were, we were Catholics, and we wanted to be Catholic, and yet we, we had completely lost our way. We thought we were at the most conservative place in Canada to become a priest, and, and yet it was conservative just because it was slowly, or more slowly liberal than some other places. So it wasn't because it was really attached to anything traditional or Catholic. And so one of the things you can do is, okay, if you're trying to find your way and you're lost— listen to what your, your enemies or uh, the, the the people against you, who do they hate? And that's what led us to Archbishop Lefebvre, because, okay, these guys, they loved absolute heretics and crazy people like Hans Kung and Charles Curran, and, and there's a whole litany of names that uh, I'm sure are familiar to people who have studied this. They loved all the liberals, but they hated Archbishop Lefebvre, uh, and they hated Pius XII, Pope Pius XII. Well, unfortunately, Pope Pius XII, that didn't lead us anywhere, um, but Archbishop Lefebvre, he was still alive. And so we researched the Society of St. Pius X, visited their seminary in, uh, it was at that time, it was in Connecticut, and we thought, okay, this is a Catholic place. This is where we want to be. And uh, we left in the middle of the night. Uh, We had prepared some literature about Archbishop Lefebvre and about tradition, and composed a letter to seminarians saying, okay, look, you know, you got to join us. This is crazy. Um, there were eight of us, and in out of about 110 seminarians, three of us decided to leave. We couldn't take it anymore. And so we left in the middle of the night, prepared literature to distribute, which we distributed before leaving, packed a U-Haul, and, and just took off. We went to the... Um, headquarters, if you like, uh, for Canada, for the Society of St. Pius X, and met the priest. And uh, from there, uh, we were sent to, the, uh, to France to go to their seminary there. So out of the three of us, one of us got ordained uh, as a priest for the Society of St. Pius X, and the other two are now doing other things. We left, as I say, suddenly, and we wanted to do it like that, so that you know, they couldn't sweep it under the rug. We wanted to make a big statement when we left, and from what we've heard, uh, we did succeed. And I think, you know, in the in the aftermath of our leaving, some others did leave. It's, in, you know, you have mixed feelings about it because 
you hate to see someone who could have become a priest leave. But on the other hand, if all they're going to become is just a someone who's going to lead other people astray, then, you know, in a certain sense, it's better that they do leave uh, rather than become a bad priest who's going to lead others to hell. So we had mixed feelings about hearing that, but yeah, that, that's what we did. So we left in the middle of the night. That was in 1987. I was in France at the Society Seminary for a year, and I transferred to the seminary uh, in the U.S. And uh, Now, if I can just jump in quickly, yes. why did you uh, go to France? To begin with, instead of directly to the uh, American, uh, yeah, the Ridgefield Seminary, then in in Connecticut, I know. Um, Well, the superior of uh, the Society Saint Pius X in Canada was French, Ah. so of course his preference was, oh, he said, you know, I could send you to the American seminary, but wouldn't you much rather go to a seminary in Paradise? which is what he called his home country. <laughs> I can't imagine oh. a Frenchman saying that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, what are we going to say, you know? <laughs> right. You know, it just, tongue-in-cheek, uh, you know, the, the, uh, a, a society priest in France told me that the Blessed Virgin Mary spoke French. So, you know, <laughs> because, because uh, you know, several of her apparitions were in France. So, you know, obviously she spoke French. So there you go. Sure, certainly. Uh, it had to be. <laughs> so tell us, be, tell yeah. us a little about your time there at the, at the seminary in France. I mean, what was, what was that like for you? I mean, that was in uh, Flavigny, right? Yes, Flavigny, yes. Oh, unbelievable. I, I've, honestly, I, I felt like, uh, it, you know, black and white compared to what I was in the Novus Ordo Seminary, the Vatican II Seminary. Unbelievable. It was just just wonderful, and being in France, no uh, no slight or or anything against uh, those who are trying to be traditional in North America. The one thing that there is does exist in France and other countries of Europe that does just simply does not exist in America, and that is uh, such a long history uh, of the faith. You know, the town we were in. I mean, there was the building that we were in, actually, that our seminary was in, um, parts of that building dated back to the 1400s. And and the town itself was uh, established by a Roman general called Flavinius. And, of course, Flavigny was in French, but, you know, and he, had this, he founded the town in the year 250. So, I mean, it's just unbelievable history. Uh, and, and we visited different places in France and saw the cathedrals and just a marvel you know you it it really was a testament you know you could see what more than a thousand years about 1500 years of catholicism in a country what effect that would have on the country it it was just a marvel to see and uh, i i'll always be grateful to that um exposure um i figured out actually you know there's the psalm i was think of and that is um uh how i forget the which psalm it is but it's uh, something like, uh, you know, a day in your um, house is better than a thousand days elsewhere. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that psalm. It's it just, that's a rough quotation off the top of my head. Well, I figured out that in four years I had spent uh, a, a thousand days uh, in, a tr- in traditional seminaries, three in the U.S. and one in France. And it, it, I'll always look at that as a great treasure. You know, it really is a great beauty, you know, to see what God gives, has given to the church and, and what those who cooperate with it, you know, have developed in terms of music and, and prayer and, and uh, spiritual writings. It, it's just wonderful. It's just great. 
So it was a great experience. I, I enjoyed it there. Um, <clears throat> I expressed an interest in transferring back to uh, the U.S. after spending a year in France. Um, I found it, you know, just a little too difficult to study in French. Um, I was, I ended up being able to speak French, not too badly. Doing academic subjects and writing in French, I found that a bit hard. So I ended up back at the seminary in Winona. Uh, moved, it moved from Connecticut to Minnesota and spent three years there, and, and those were very enjoyable years. John, let me ask you a question real quick. Who, uh, who was the seminary rector when you were in the Flavonese? Flavonese, it was um, Father Andre. Okay. And when you got that back to Winona, it was obviously... Bishop Williamson, a right. Frenchman, well, was, yeah, right. A Frenchman, and so yeah. that would have been Father Williamson at the time when you got back to Winona, right? Yeah, that's right. the The one okay. thing that he uh, he never lived down was the fact that his uh, his first name was John Paul, and he, he did not <laughs> <laughs> did not being like named after uh, someone you know or having the same name as uh, <laughs> a certain <laughs> Polish What's person the, uh... who was renamed Nate Nameless. Uh, <laughs> well, I just kind of cracked that egg, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I mean, he was okay person. Uh, what one one thing that uh, I, I discovered was that um, you know he had, I believe, he was a captain in the French army, uh, and uh, similarly, uh, there there was another priest, Father Simulin, another Frenchman who was all who. Um, had at times been uh, rector of the seminary in Acon uh, in Switzerland. And so uh, they, they had a habit of putting these uh, army officers in charge of their seminaries. John, I think this would be a good time to sort of talk about the structural differences. You've spoken about your time in both of the Novus Ordo seminaries as well as your time in the Society of St. Pius X seminaries. And maybe you could give to our listeners a bit of a, like I said, a structural difference between a day in the life of the seminarian at the Novus Ordo seminary versus the Society seminary. What were the differences? What were you expected to do? Uh, what was the general discipline difference uh, expected of you as a seminarian at that time? I'll address that question in, in three major points, because I think that's um, the best way to look at it. And they would be prayer, uh, prayer time, uh, meals, and just the, the general discipline. Um, I'll start with prayer. And um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with the divine office that uh, priests and religious say. Um, it, it, uh, the form that we, well, it's traditionally Catholic, actually comes from St. Benedict. Um, in, this, in Proverbs, he says the just man sins seven times a day. So St. Benedict's answer was, okay, well, we're going to pray eight times a day. And so the divine office at his time was uh, consisted in seven hours, so he added an eighth. And so the monks and then the general clergy adopted that, um, prayed eight times a day, and that was enforced, of course, until Vatican II. Um, and so that was the rule that was followed in the society seminary. Uh, at St. Peter's, of course, we followed the Vatican II rules. Now, I should mention one, um, there were eight hours in the tradition in the Catholic way. Uh, Vatican II got rid of one of the eight hours right away. Uh, it was the first hour of the day. I suspect the reason they got rid of it was because included in that hour was a reading from the Martyrology, which is a book that is very old and uh, contains uh, for each day of the year uh, 
contains uh, the, the, a list of the saints that were martyred on that day. And it's, it's very moving, some of the accounts, um, but that was read every day. And, and it's still read every day by Catholic priests. Um, the Vatican II priests, of course, don't read it, but I think that's the reason Vatican II got rid of that. Uh, they may have come up with another excuse, but, you know, I, it's just they don't like to be reminded of people who want to die for their faith. It's contrary to Vatican II, uh, where everything's ecumenical. So in the Vatican II way of doing things, there are, strictly speaking, seven hours. But what they do is they say the three of them are optional, which means they never get done. And so what you're left with is that people pray for of the eight hours. And, you know, so right off the bat, someone who thinks that they can be Catholic or become a Catholic priest in a Vatican II seminary, they're fighting an uphill battle because right away, a lot of their prayer, um, which is protection against the devil, which is uh, spiritual strengthening, which is uh, leading them towards union with God, a lot of that prayer is taken away from them. So even if there weren't all this other nonsense going on, you're not praying as much. And so you can't hope to become a saintly priest as you would under another type of, at a different kind of seminary, at a Catholic seminary. So that's the first point, is that um, we tended to follow, well, we followed the Vatican II prayer regimen, which is prayer four times a day. So in common, uh, we would pray one or two. Uh, there is a morning prayer and an evening prayer, as it's now called, but the old nomenclature was lauds and vespers. Uh, we would pray one of those in common every day in the main chapel, and whichever one we didn't pray, uh, in, we'd alternate praying that in the morning and having a, a group, like a seminary-wide uh, liturgy, as they called them, the new mass, um, in the chapel, if we prayed in the morning, we'd have the liturgy in the evening. If we had the Mass in the morning, we'd pray together in the evening. But on some days, one day a week, we'd have the prayers in the morning together. And then in the evening, we'd have group Masses, which were informal gatherings in the various um, lounges in the seminary. And uh, you know, the lounges would typically have couches and a TV set and a coffee table and microwave and kitchen and refrigerator, and you'd have a mass there. And it was, you know, the, 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 there was no altar. There was just the mass on the coffee table, and the priest would sit down on the, on the couch. And uh, very informal. Everybody would sit down and just kind of a, you know, lounge coffee table mass with everyone sitting. And so that was uh, once a week we had that. And so, you know, that's sort of the, um, in the Vatican II summary, that sort of a, ends up with prayer. Now, um, <clears throat> excuse me, there was no um, group rosary or, or you know, rosary um, mandatory for the whole seminary, but there were a few... I'd say at the most 30, the number varied. There were some of the more conservative seminarians who would gather three times a week to pray the rosary in the evening after dinner. And so that was nice, but it wasn't enforced as a seminary-wide policy. 
Uh, in contrast, in the, in the traditional seminary, uh, like that of the Pius X, you prayed the hours. Uh, we had the, the first uh, hour of the day, before morning Mass, we prayed uh, the first canonical hour, which uh, they're named after the Roman hours of the day. So this was prime, which is the first hour, which is typically at 6 a.m., although in our schedule we prayed it at 6.30 after we woke up at 6. And we pray that together in Latin with a reading from the Martyrology. Um, and I think the Martyrology was in English, just so that everyone could understand it. But that was what we prayed there. We'd have midday uh, prayer, sext, which is the sixth hour of the day, according to the Roman count, uh, way of counting hours. We'd pray that at noon, and then follow that before lunch. After that, we'd go to lunch. And in the afternoon, we'd have rosary together as a group. And in uh, the month of May, we'd accompany that with recre- or with uh, sorry benediction. And then in the evening, uh, before night's uh, lights out, we'd have night prayer or compline, as it's uh, in Latin. So we would have a group prayer from the office three times a day at the uh, traditional or Catholic seminary as opposed to once a day in the Novus Ordo or Vatican II seminary. Um, that's pretty well prayer. Uh, the second well, sorry, category... John, can I just uh, yeah. ask you Go one ahead. more yeah, thing? Go ahead, please, yeah. Uh, how often did you have Mass at the uh, Catholic seminary? Once a day. Okay. So it, it was, and I mean, and, it was always uh, in the chapel, what, never in the lounge. It, was it offered? It wasn't offered on a coffee table then. Uh, no, no, hardly. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, hardly there. Okay. So I, I mean, that's a very that's a, that, that's a very very stark contrast right there. I mean, just mass one a week coffee table mass versus daily. Well, and I should say mass in quotations because most likely those would be. Invalid, I suppose, depending on who's offering. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, yeah, so whether they're really masses or just informal gatherings at a coffee table, who knows? Right. But yeah, there is, okay. a, there is truly a doubt. Plus all the other, uh, the other prayers. So, I mean, that, that's, that, that should really be, I think, a wake-up call to anyone who's thinking they can uh, infiltrate one of these Novus Ordo seminaries and try and change things from within. Uh, yeah, I mean, you'd you'd have no prayer life in there. No, you'd have no prayer life, and and someone who thinks that they can do that really does not understand the value of prayer. Because you know, we're, as Saint Paul says, you know, our battle is against is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and uh, of high places, or something like that. I mean, it's a spiritual warfare that we're involved in, and if you don't take advantage of the spiritual weapons and protection that the church offers, you can't hope to fight it. Um, the next thing I guess I'll move to is um, the whole question of meals. And you'd think that, well, okay, <laughs> surely Vatican II people can't mess that up. Um, but in fact, they did. And it was uh, an interesting result of applying of a logical application of their beliefs because especially from the um, 
social justice slash Marxist professor, he insisted that, you know, our kitchen staff had to be unionized and there had to be this and there had to be that. And it was all this kind of regulation, regimentation associated with it just to be socially just. But the end result was the food was terrible. And, you know, it was institutional food and it was served on a four-week schedule, which meant that you were able, everyone was able to predict when their least favorite meal would again be served. And so if it was lunch, you could just absent yourself. And if it was supper, you had to be there because the, uh, the professors actually did take attendance because they said it was part of community. Um, but you didn't have to eat. You just had to sit there and maybe drink something. You didn't eat. And then, of course, you just go out to a restaurant afterwards. So it, it was the food really was bad, really terrible. Contrast that with the Catholic seminary where the people uh, were you know, paid to cook the meals, but they did it out of love. There was a whole spirit of love and generosity which doesn't come from a unionized environment. That's more factory food. And in addition to that, uh, my experience in France and in the USA was that the local farmers were quite happy to donate their food. And so you really had good food. Um, In France, I mean, the French cuisine was just amazing. You know, we had some of the fancy dishes that you'd have to pay even $100 for some of those meals at a restaurant here. But over there, it was, it was just a regular meal. Mm. Unbelievable. You know, Coco Vin, which is like rooster with wine and oh, all kinds of meals. that were just unbelievable. And that the, the farmers would donate the food and the cooks would cook it and it would be marvelous. And, you know, so the food, the quality of food was much better both in France and in the USA. And, and it's surprising. You wouldn't expect that, but it was true, just because of the love of the people donating the food and the love of the people cooking it. And so that was one other thing that was quite different. Um, the last thing was just, the, I would call it the general life at the seminary. Um, at the Vatican II Nova Sordo Seminary, um, there was no sense of silence. It was just like a regular residence. People, everyone had a key to the front door. And the rule was, you could stay out all night if you wanted to, as long as you were there in the chapel for the first prayer or mass, first time in the first thing in the morning. So they really didn't care where you were all night, as long as you were there in the chapel in the morning. And so it, it just did not lead to a spiritual life. Contrast that with what happened in the traditional seminary, where there was mandatory silence from the end of Compline or night prayers until uh, the first class in the morning. And, of course, that's with the exception of the, the first prayers in the morning in the chapel and the responses at Mass. But other than that, that's the only words you spoke from the, the end of the, fir- of the night before, after prayers. And until the end of your first class in the morning, you were allowed to speak between classes. But before the first class, you were not allowed to speak. 
So it, it was just an amazing um, atmosphere, the, the silence where the only thing you can imagine, you're, everything is silent except the only thing you're allowed to say is prayer. That's the only thing you can say out loud. It, it, it's just a wonderful way of developing growth in the spiritual life. And uh, at meals, even during the day and at uh, like lunch and supper, would begin in silence, uh, except that there would be someone who would be assigned to read. And so they'd read uh, books. Some would be history books. Some would be the lives of a saint. Uh, but you'd have reading. Uh, the meal would be, say, half an hour. So the first 20 minutes, you'd have a reading. And then uh, the last 10 minutes of the meal, you'd be able to have conversation. So the whole thing was, was geared towards, and of course, oh, yes, in the traditional seminary, huh, there was no going out at night. Uh, once you finished the, uh, the night prayer at Compline, you it was lights out at 10 p.m., and that was it. You just stayed inside. None of this having a key to the front door of the seminary. And uh, we were only allowed to go into town once a week. Otherwise, we were on the seminary grounds. Although we did go for, we could go for walks, certainly. But, uh, you know, you didn't go into town except for once a week. Uh, quite a contrast. Now, uh, just thinking of the general life, how did seminarians dress at uh, the Novus Ordo and at the <coughs> traditional seminary? Well, the Novus Ordo is... Uh, just shirt and, and pants. It's like any university student would dress or college student, no different. It wasn't to the level where you'd, you'd have guys in uh, T-shirts or tank tops or, you know, uh, uh, jogging clothes. Um, it wouldn't be that sloppy, let's say. But, you know, there, there would be no uh, Sunday, of course. You'd see guys in a jacket and tie. But uh, that's it. You know, it would just be no different than... You would see guys in any college or university setting. Uh, there was no cassocks. We, we didn't wear that at all. What about it? I mean, it may be obvious to some of our listeners, but what is it? What about at the uh, traditional, at the Catholic seminary? Oh, Catholic seminary. Well, the Catholic seminary, everyone uh, dressed very well. Of course, jacket and tie on Sunday. Now that is for those who are not yet uh, clerics, and there's the difference. Uh, between the Novus Ordo and Vatican II and Catholic seminary. In the Catholic way of becoming a priest, as it were, you would enter into the clerical state at a certain, after the first six months usually, and you would remain in that state until you became a priest, unless you decided to leave. Which meant that after you entered the clerical state, you would wear a cassock. And depending on the custom of the of the country, you may inst- going out in public. You may instead of wearing a cassock, you might wear you know a clerical suit. But other than that, you would cease wearing lay clothes or layman's clothes. You know the the jacket and tie or the uh, shirt and slacks. That you would cease wearing that. And and once you entered the clerical state, which had its own ceremony uh, before the bishop called tonsure. But once you entered the clerical state, you would, from that moment on, wear your so-called clerics, which would be a cassock or a clerical suit, as they say, depending on the custom of the the country you're in. Mm. So it would be that that would be quite a that would be a big difference. Did you do any laboring there, John? I mean, was there any were you expected to to help maintain the seminary? Yes. Okay. That, now that too is a difference um, in the traditional ceremony uh, seminary. Everyone 
uh, every seminarian took part in manual labor. You know, there were a lot of jobs, um, not necessarily the really heavy jobs, but, you know, things had to be cleaned, dishes had to be done, table had to be set for the next meal. All of these jobs were divided out on a weekly basis to the seminarians. Everyone was, uh, even up to the deacons, everyone had to do it, had to do a, 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 week, a job for a week. And if you missed doing your job, you were assigned to a week of doing pots and pans. So it was it was expected that everyone would do their job. In the Vatican II or Novus Ordo summary, there was none of that. Oh no, we were kings. We didn't do any manual labor. There was, you know, you'd hire staff for that sort of thing. Unionized was, staff, of course. Of course. Well, yes, of course, unionized staff. Yes, we have to be socially just. But uh, whereas the in, in the Catholic seminary, the, even the priests are are taught the value of manual labor. And, and just taught that, you know, you guys are not little princes. You're servants to God in a way that, you know, you're, you're called to serve the people. You're not called to be lords of the manor. And that, that was, I think that was very valuable. I remember there was one uh, fellow and uh, his response, when he was told that he had to do manual labor, his response was, well, my hands are made for chalices, not calluses. Oh, and, uh, well, that he was shown the door. <laughs> yeah, so really what, you know, what you're describing here, John, really, if, if we want to sum this up in a, in a macro view, you, you're describing order versus disorder. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and order, every order implies a purpose. It's not just order for the sake of order, but, yeah, there, there's a purpose to the order, and that is a spiritual formation. It's not just academic you can, of course, you can get that anywhere, but the, the spiritual formation, I think, is much more important. You remember the Curie of Ars, the, the greatest parish priest that ever lived. He was not an academic in any way, but he was a spiritual man. Mm-hmm. And that, that was his greatness. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, was, it was a marvelous experience. And, of course, when I came to uh, the seminary in the States, it was Bishop Williamson that was in charge there. So it was, it was a great experience, very traditional. Um, but then, you know, I guess in uh, retrospect, I began to see cracks in the armor uh, in the society. And, you know, I guess some people complain, well, every, you know, wherever you go, you're not happy. You always find something wrong with it. Well, uh, not quite that. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to be Catholic. Thank you very much. One of the things that I did notice at the uh, in the Society of St. Pius X was when Archbishop, and this was even true when Archbishop Lefebvre was alive, when he changed, when he died. Ah, now that's an interesting story. But um, even when he was alive, you know, there, there was it was I found it sort of a disturbing trend, and that was well, for the average question like murder, stealing the Ten Commandments, those kind of things. There's lots of books. There are plenty of books written before Vatican II about those subjects. And so for those kind of things, like how to say Mass, the liturgy, those kind of things, I mean, there were plenty of books written about that. So for those kind of questions, the questions on those subjects, within the Society of St. Pius of they would say, okay, we'll just read the books, or the answer to any of your questions is in those books. But when it came to other questions that were new or that were, were that, that came along with the current problems in the church, you know, Vatican II and all of that, where you know you couldn't find the answer in a book anywhere, the response was always, "Well, just do what Archbishop Lefebvre said." So he became sort of a, a, a super authority on everything. 
and and it was almost like well it, it just seemed like okay don't think just listen we'll tell you what the answer is and and that was sort of a, an ongoing theme and even when the answer that they gave you on some of these subjects was subject to change like at one point in time i remember hearing even with my own ears archbishop lefebvre saying in a sermon you know all of these things that the Pope has done, of course, he thinking that John Paul II was the Pope, all of these things that the Pope has done, he says, it, it might force us one day to believe that he is not the Pope. And so he's saying that publicly in his sermon, and everyone's going, wow, Archbishop Lefebvre is, is suggesting that John Paul II is not the Pope uh, because of all of the crazy things he's doing, that he could not be a Pope. But then later on, he would change his tune because he would want to get in, at that time, Cardinal Ratzinger's good graces to try to negotiate a solution for the Society of St. Pius X. You know, so he would, like, those kind of questions would, would change all the time. And it was always, oh, well, just listen, do what Archbishop Lefebvre says. Don't think, just listen. And that was an ongoing thing. When Archbishop Lefebvre died, then things really started to change. I remember being at the seminary in Winona when he died. Uh, it was actually announced over the loudspeakers of the seminary, the PA system, that he had died. And I think it was, I, if I remember, it was, it was 8 p.m., in, in, at least in uh, central time in the States. I think that's when it was. But uh, anyway, I remember hearing the, and all of us just, wherever, whatever we were doing, we all went to the chapel and prayed silently. That, I think, was March 25th of 91 when he died. And then after that, in the month, I think it was April, Bishop Williamson said, okay, well, there's going to be a lot of changes in the site of St. Pius X, and uh, Father Schmidberger, who was then the superior, is going to come, and he's going to talk with each one of you, and things are going to change. So I had a meeting with Father Schmidberger after Archbishop Lefebvre died, and it did not go very well. And something interesting I noticed was that um, a, lot, a number of guys who I would say were sort of independent thinkers, or at least had showed a tendency to think for themselves. They were sort of on a hit list. Father Schmidberger let me know in that meeting uh, that in no uncertain terms, he wanted me out. I had to, uh, I, I told my spiritual director, well, this is what Father Schmidberger said, he wants me out. And then the, my director said, well, tell Bishop Williamson. So I told Bishop Williamson, and he says, well, how soon can you leave? And I said to so I had to plead with Bishop Williamson that, look, it's April. Could I not stay for two more months to the end of the school year and, and then leave? I mean, you know, like, is it that much of a big deal to stay for two extra months? Finally, he relented and said, okay. But he said, I'm going to be watching you. I'm going, What? <laughs> Let's okay. Let's let's pause. Did, did they give let's you a, that conversation? Yeah. Go ahead, Nicholas. Well, I think we're going the same place, Justin. I think go back to um, the uh, the Father uh, Schmidt. Yeah. What was the was any reason given to you? Like, what was it that they didn't like? Came time for my appointment, and I walked in, and he did not want to look at me, and I had a real feeling of antagonism. It, it's funny, you know. You you just have a feeling for that. Sometimes when you meet someone, you just feel ah. Oh, it, it's a, you can just have a sense. And I sat down and waited for, you know, about a minute and a half or so. And then he looked up at me and he said, so how's it going? And I said, well, 
I'm having, you know, not, not sometimes good, sometimes not so well. And then he said, okay, how are your studies? And I said, well, sometimes, you know, a struggle. How's your prayer? You know, prayer life. Well, I'm struggling. And uh, how's, you know, how do you find life in general, living with everyone else? Oh, that, that's, you know, I'm struggling with that. And then he says, hmm. And he says, well, I guess things aren't going that well. And I said, well, you know, I'm struggling. I mean, it's not easy, uh, but, you know, I'm struggling through it. And he says, well, you know, I think that you should just leave. And, and I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. Who is going to say that it's easy? You know, that, that, that this doesn't seem like a fair question. I said, things could change. I mean, they could get better. And he just looked at me and said, it's possible. Uh, but still, he insisted that I, I tell my spiritual director that he recommended that I should leave. And so I did. You know, the meeting ended. Um, I went to tell my spiritual director, uh, and he said, well, you better tell Bishop Williamson. And I told Bishop Williamson, and he said, well, you better leave right away. And I said, well, look, it's only, it was just April, and, you know, the, why not let me just stay till the end of June? I mean, it's only two more months, and let me just finish the year, and then I'll leave. And he says, oh, okay, I'll do that, but I'm going to be watching you. This is full. What am I going to do? You know me. I, you know, you've known me for two and a half years here. You know what? A, but anyway, that was the way the meeting went. You know, it was not really. I didn't think it was a fair, like a real reason to let me go. But on the face of it, yeah, okay. So I, I was having struggle with my uh, studies and prayer, but so is everyone else. So I just, I, I felt that uh, he had an agenda to let me go. Did Did you have any sense of like? What was with Bishop Williamson telling you, oh, well, you better go then? Was he on board with this, or was he uh, just thinking that he was going to get in trouble with Well, I, with that was the, sec- yeah, the, the, the second one. And, and the same, I had the same sense with my spiritual director, too, you know. I just said, Father Schmidberger said, and they go, oh, well, you better go. And, and the same, Bishop Williamson, oh, you better go. So, I mean, it's almost like they didn't want to stick their neck out and oppose Father Schmidberger for fear that they you know, would fall under the axe as well. How long did that meeting actually last, John, if you can recall, between yourself and uh, yeah. the Yeah, I, I, I doubt it was more than five minutes. Wow. So that, yeah. was, all, that was all determined within a, a five-minute conversation. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, which, which you know, as I, I, I keep thinking about it, and I just think he, before I even went in, he had the intention or the desire to get rid of me, and that the, the fact that I was struggling was just an excuse, you know, because it wasn't a very long conversation at all. Uh, up to that point in time, had you had any conversation in your, in your entire life with Father Schmidtberger, or was that your first time meeting him? No, I don't think I had the occasion. Even when I was in France, I, I think I saw him <laughs> twice. One of them was at Icone, but it was always at a distance. You know, he wasn't, before that, he never had a a, a one-on-one chat with uh, individual seminarians. It was always like, you know, he'd give conferences to us as a group, or we'd see him. But, you know, that was the only time that I remember having a, a one-on-one conversation with him. Just for context for listeners, he was the Superior General of the Society of St. Pius X at that time. At that time, yes, at that time. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. The reason why I asked that question was because I just kind of want to people know this wasn't something where you had met with Father Schmidtberger many different times and he had sort of a foundation to base this on instead of just a five minute conversation. It would be one thing if you two had met several different times and he was rendering a final judgment based upon several different. Yeah, I was on his habitual offender list or something. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, But to not to have not met you and not really known much about your your. in your seminary time there and hadn't you know, talked to your superiors about you know, what was going on. So, Yeah, it, it was just very surprising. You know, the whole context, Archbishop Lefebvre dies. The announcement comes from a cone that there's going to be big changes in the Society of St. Pius X. Then Father Schmidberger comes and visit, and people have to leave, or, or you know, big personnel changes are made. So it, it was, I was just sort of caught in the middle of that. Looking back in hindsight, do you have any opinion as to what it was that they didn't like about you? Well, I know that I had co-authored a book about my experience at St. Peter's Seminary. So, you know, I I was a bit, I guess that, that gave me sort of a celebrity, I suppose. And I know that they were very, you know, very, I, I don't know. It was just a strange feeling that I had that there was another seminarian in, in uh, at Icone. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, uh, Peter Lovest Thou Me, um, which is a book yes. that um, the Society of St. Pius X printed. It was written by a seminarian at Icone, um, and it was, all, it was all about John Paul II. And it was pictures of him kissing the Koran, uh, receiving the blessing from the Hindu priestess in, in India, and all of these different things. And, and basically showing him doing all of the scandalous things that are unfortunately known to most of us. And, and basically asking the question, well, do you love God? I mean, do you love Jesus? You know, Peter, does thou love me? You know, and I met the man who wrote that seminarian, and uh, he, was, he was really not just smart, um, but, you know, he was really on the ball. And, and I, from what I would say, not a yes man, not someone who just was going to take orders without questioning. You know, he was a questioner. He was a, uh, a person that asked questions and just didn't take things at face value. He also left. So, you know, I'm thinking, okay, we have two guys that both wrote books and both were independent thinkers that, you know, were not yes men, and both of them left. I have no other explanation other than just that fact. And and even after after his death, Archbishop Lefebvre, they wanted to uh, they were wanted to say, oh well, we have the power to grant marriage annulments. Mm. And so, oh, and by the way, we happen to have a letter written by Archbishop Lefebvre before his death saying that we should do this. And I'm going, okay, wait a minute, it doesn't make sense for his whole life. He says, no, we don't have the authority to do that. We can perform marriages, but we can't do annulments. We don't have authority. His whole life he says that, and supposedly before he dies, he writes a letter saying the opposite, and he doesn't tell anybody about it. You know, like it didn't make any sense. And all of a sudden they produce this letter, which no one has seen that I know of, but, but it just, they say, oh, Archbishop Lefebvre said it, and that's it. That's the end of discussion. And so they, they use that as a, he became sort of like a, a super pope or, or a, effectively a pope, um, not from his own doing, but just sort of the way that the situation evolved. You know, everything he said had a, a character of infallibility, and it was right. he said it. That's what it was. 
But but some of the things I noticed after he died, it, it's almost like they couldn't change things fast enough. There was a major shift in personnel. Different people were put in charge of different things, and and people were moved around. They changed the books uh, that were used at the seminary in Winona. And I thought, what are they doing? They're changing all the books. They're changing everything around. And it was just, there's so many small, I guess there's small changes in a way, but it it was just indicating a spirit that, you know, as soon as Archbishop Lefebvre died, all of these changes happened. And it was like they were waiting for him to die. And, and they just have continued with whatever they're doing, saying, oh, this is what Archbishop Lefebvre would have wanted. And they use that as sort of a justification in doing all kinds of things. And when you say they changed the book, from what to what were they changing? Well, okay, I'm thinking of one book in particular. Um, I don't know if you've heard of uh, the book called The Spiritual Life by Tankery. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, that book, it's, it's about ascetical and mystical theology, which basically is about spiritual things like uh, visions, apparitions, recognizing the spirit of evil in, you know, when is the devil talking, figuratively, of course, and and sort of discerning spirits, prayer, fasting, all of those kind of things. That book was used in seminaries. It was used at St. Peter's Seminary in London before Vatican II. I know it was used at the seminary in uh, Toronto. It was used all over the states, English-speaking countries. That was that was a book used in the seminaries, and it's it's a great book. I believe you can get old copies of it, or I think it's even in reprint. But it's a very thorough going over of all of these spiritual topics, and that was used at Winona, of course, because it was used everywhere else. Well, Archbishop Lefebvre dies; they get rid of Tankery, and I went there to as a visit uh, on a visit. Uh, I think it was. A year or two after Archbishop Lefebvre died, I was completely shocked by what they had replaced it with. It was some thin, but I think Tankery is uh, quite sizable, about uh, something like 500 pages. And they replaced it with some thin book, about 150 pages, that I can't remember the name of it, but it, it barely touched on some of these subjects. And I thought, what are they doing? They're getting rid of these books that are really explain the subjects. Like, why don't they want you know, the seminarians, the priests, to be able to discern good and evil spirits. Well, what are they doing? You know, why are they taking that away? So it was just very strange that, and, and you know, one of the things they did was they started changing the, the rubrics at the Mass. It's always been traditional. You can see it in any old missile that people use to follow the Mass, that when the Sanctus comes, people kneel. At the society churches, they change it. Oh, no, it's Sanctus who stand. Huh. What? Mm-hmm. And, and there were changes like that that were going on, and you said, "Well, what is this? You know, why are they changing these things?" So it was that was just one of the things, and and this is I'm not exposing anything secret because this is public knowledge. Uh, at least my experience with the society chapels, there were two sets of rules. You know, if there there was, and rightfully so, uh, there was a dress code that you know a, a church is a place of reverence and respect. And if you're not dressed respectfully and reverently, you were told uh, to either change what you were, you know, get on, come back when you're dressed more appropriately. Or I know in, in Toronto, they would refuse communion to you if you were not dressed respectfully and reverently. Well, okay, that was, you know, the application of the rule. But that changed if you were a generous donator. If you made generous donations to the church, then that whole 
you know, it didn't matter what you wore. You were never criticized. And so there are things like that happen too. And so I, I made the mistake of um, sort of pointing these things out and then was asked. I, I actually received a letter from uh, the Superior General, Bishop Ballet, at the time, uh, telling me that I was no longer welcome at any of the churches of the Society of St. Pius X uh, throughout the world. That's really? Sort of yeah. Well, when, when did you receive wow. that? When, when did you? I've never. I don't think I've heard of anyone receiving a a personal uh, letter from <laughs> Bishop Bellet telling them they're not not welcome yeah. to society chapels. When when did that happen? Uh, that was in somewhere around there, ninety seven, I believe. Did yeah. you give a reason for that, or was it just? Uh, well, you know, it, I had a choice. I could retract what I was saying. That you know that I could retract because I actually I had written a letter to Bishop Fellay complaining about some of these abuses, and his he responded by saying, "Look, if you don't stop saying what you're saying and retract everything, then you're out." I couldn't retract what I said because I said the truth, and and besides, mm-hmm. you know, what was really telling to me is if I had written him a letter saying, "Oh, you've got a big nose," um, you know, I mean, <laughs> he wouldn't have taken it seriously. But because I wrote about this thing saying, "Okay, you know." There are these problems like giving, having preferential treatment for people that donate money. All of a sudden, he jumps all over me and says, you better stop saying that, or otherwise you're no longer welcome. So, hmm, you know, maybe I really hit something. And then, so that sort of prompted my exodus. Um, so I, after that, I tried going to the Ukrainian, uh, which I know a lot of people do, especially in uh uh, bigger cities in Canada um, and also in the northern, uh, northeastern U.S., there is a uh, significant presence, I guess, if you like, of Ukrainian Catholics who have a different liturgy, um, and it hasn't been changed as much, uh, probably not very much at all, um, since Vatican II. So, you know, it's relatively traditional, if you like, uh, because their liturgy has not been changed, but you know, they are beginning to be infected with Vatican II like everyone else. So I finally realized that was not an option. Uh, one thing, there there may be listeners um, who, you know, have gone to the Ukrainian as an alternative. Uh, they should know that um, the worldwide um, patriarch, as they call him, of all the Ukrainians, of all the Ukrainian Catholics worldwide, um, he's in the Ukraine. Uh, I forget his name, but anyway... He issued a worldwide directive that all the Ukrainian churches throughout the world were to change the words of the creed um, to a form that was more acceptable to the Orthodox. Right, and for listeners who might be a bit unfamiliar with the history of that or some of the arguments that the Ukrainians use, just as a very brief aside, the, the filioque was introduced into the creed, I guess, well, I think that was at the behest of Emperor Charlemagne, but it was only introduced in the western part of the church, and then, of course, the eastern churches all went into schism. And then when the Ukrainians, the Uniat Church, came back to the Catholic Church, they adopted that as part of showing their um, faithfulness to the, the Catholic faith and to the Pope and to the decisions that it made while they were away, so to speak. Yes. For those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to the True Restoration flagship show on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and this evening I'm joined by my co-host, Nicholas Wansbutter, and our 
guest of honor this evening is Mr. John Thompson, who has been going through his experiences through the Novus Ordo seminaries in Canada, as well as finding his way to tradition through the Society of St. Pius X Seminary. And John, I think we're getting close here to wrapping up our show, but before we do, uh, I sort of want to uh, let you close out and bracket this whole story with uh, uh, you know, your, your exit from the SSPX Seminary. Yeah, yes. Okay. Bishop Williamson let me stay to the end of the year, uh, which is just two more months. So I did make it to the end of June. Uh, I participated in the ordinations, which is the last thing of the year, and uh, made my way back home and uh, left on good terms with everyone. And then, of course, had a bit of uh, trouble later on when I found uh, some things that were questionable in this society and uh, made a break with them and um, was dissatisfied. I, I just didn't know where to, to go. Society of St. Pius X, I had thought, was the last place, the last bastion or the last group of people that were trying to hold on to Catholicism in its purest form. And I thought, well, I guess that's that. I went to the, um, so it's called now the Moto Proprio Mass, uh, where uh, I was there for a while. And then um, I came upon uh, some discussion that with the changes of the sacraments after Vatican II, the consecration of a bishop is invalid. And so that being the case, then all the bishops that have, been, have become bishops after Vatican II are not bishops. And so they cannot ordain priests, and they cannot create other bishops. So what you had is, I, I, with that motu proprio mass, it was in a parish in Toronto, and there was a priest saying the mass, but the actual fact was he was not a priest, because the man who ordained him was not a bishop. So I had a layman standing up there saying the mass. Well, nothing happens. It's just bread and wine does not become the body and blood of Christ. So I left that. It was February the 2nd, Feast of the Purification uh, of 2013. I, I said a prayer to the Blessed Virgin Mary and said, okay, please show me what I have to do to save my soul. After that, I felt led to find other writings, documents, uh, videos, Etc. And some of them were by um, Father Chicada, whose name has been mentioned, um, and uh, Bishop Sanborn, who's also been mentioned. Uh, and I studied the whole question about the Pope, about the Church, about the sacraments, and uh, came to the conclusion by that study, and I encourage anyone listening to this who has not done so to do a similar study with an open mind. You know, really, you owe it to yourself to study the arguments. It's not opinion. It's, it's argumentation uh, based on Catholic principles. And if you believe it to be wrong, well, come up with some reasons. But when you, when you read everything that's been written and, and listen to everything that's been said, the arguments are very convincing. So I followed that whole line, came to the conclusion, or, or came to uh, agree with uh, the position that all of the men after Pius XII who were elected as Pope. Uh, there's no disputing the fact that they were elected, although there's, there, there is some, you'll find some discussion doubting that, but let us just suppose that the elections happened. Well, 
they they could have been elected, but for various reasons they did not they could not be popes. So it's not as if we're against the pope. We're just saying, well, applying Catholic principles, the men who were elected as pope could not become pope because they were not Catholic or various other discussions or arguments to that effect. So I that is called the so-called set of vacantis position because sede vacante is Latin for the chair is vacant, but it just made sense to me. And so I followed that line of thinking, found out that in Canada, at least, there's only one church that has a priest that follows that line. So that's in London, Ontario. So I moved from Toronto to London so that I could attend Mass at that church, and that's where I am now. I find that it's, uh, again, it led, led back to Pope Pius XII. Uh, one of the other things that, you know, when you're lost, uh, one of the ways of finding your way is to retrace your steps. And he said, okay, I'm now lost. Let me go back and retrace my steps to the point where I was not lost. And when a Catholic does that, he or she will, will come back to Pope Pius XII. Because during the time of Pope Pius XII, the man who was the last true pope that we've had, the church was in a good state. Everyone knew what being Catholic meant. Everyone knew what the church taught, and it was before anyone had even said the words Vatican II. So when a Catholic retraces his steps or her steps and goes back, you'll find your way back to Pope Pius XII. And that is effectively what I've done, although not intending to do that, but that's what I've done, because the church where I'm at, it's as if it's still 1958 in terms of the Mass that's being said, the things that are being taught and the way Catholic life is being lived. So it, it's sort of just going back to being Catholic the way that we knew how to be Catholic. And so that's where I am now, and uh, I've come full circle in my own experience, you know, being born during the reign of Pius XII, and now I'm back at a church that follows the Mass and the teachings that existed in the church at the time of Pius XII. So that's where I am now. Well, that's quite a story, I have to say, John. That's that's uh, that is quite a story. It's interesting. I never tire of hearing people's stories, but particularly yours because of of the seminary experience, or this, I should say, the seminary experiences plural. Having walked somewhat, you know, a similar path in my own shoes, and this minus the seminary experience, but certainly through the various steps of tradition, I can't say I've come full circle, but I've certainly walked a significant part of that journey as well to reach the same conclusions. I just find this this story to be a to be a confirmation of what you know certainly you know the three of us on the phone know, but I think it's it, it's also going to prove to the listener to be a confirmation uh even if they don't want to to do the research into the articles that y- that you talked about. They're certainly going to relate to the experience that they saw that drove them to tradition or that might be uh currently pushing them in that direction. I think that, you know, these, these examples that you give, the stories that you give, are going to uh, certainly reinforce in their minds that uh, this, is not, this is not by accident. You know, as you said, this is by design. There's just no question about it. I mean, none of this stuff, I mean, you know, this, this stuff couldn't just accidentally have occurred. Yes, that's correct. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it, the other con- the confirmation of that is that the exact same things are happening everywhere in the world. You know, that's right. too much of a coincidence that it should all happen like that everywhere. 
Thank you guys for having me. It's it's been a pleasure uh, relating uh, my stories and and hearing some of your own uh, that you've also related. And uh, I, I want to thank you for having me on. Oh, oh the, John, the, the pleasure it's, it's, pleasure is all all ours, John. And I just want to echo a bit of uh, Justin's uh, comments uh, and thank you for sharing that. And uh, I think it's I mean, you know, we've had some war stories from uh, Father Chicada and some of the clergy, and but you know, they were in the uh, seminary back in the '60s. And then, so you you give a perspective of how things are a bit closer now. I imagine they can only be worse in the seminaries yeah. than uh, yes, but uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I and I I really hope that listeners, especially listeners who have loved ones in the Nova Sordo Seminary or or themselves in the seminary or thinking about it, uh, I hope they really take to heart the things you said and especially think about some of what you talked about, about how living in that milieu and hiding Catholicism within yourself, how you can't fight from the inside that way because of who holds all the structures of power and also what that will do to you in the long run of constantly taking this in and, and never never putting out the Catholicism. What, will, what kind of answers might you give if you do try staying the course in one of these places? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's right, exactly. Well, I would encourage our listeners, if you have any questions that you would like to specifically address to uh, to Mr. Thompson here this evening, you can write to us at flagship at truerestoration.org, and we will pass those on to him and uh, get you in contact and, and get you a response to your to your questions. You know, once again, John, uh, I, I thank you for your time this evening, and I hope to have you back on the air sometime. Well, that, that would be my pleasure, you know, and uh, thank you again for having me. Well, Nicholas, I want to thank you for joining us here this evening. I thoroughly enjoy having John on this. And I would like to remind listeners that all of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask if you found the show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your Catholic faith, that you would consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a Mass, saying a rosary, or or even saying a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Uh, If you'd like to reproduce our work on your channel, we'd like to hear from you. Feel free to mail us at flagship at truerestoration.org. That's flagship at truerestoration.org. For the Restoration, I am Justin Soder, having been joined by Nicholas Wanfutter. Good night, and may God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org.
That's novusordowatch.org.